everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. I'm Alistair Stevens, and I cannot wait for tonight's reading, because tonight, tonight, we finally meet Captain Faramir of Gondor, my favorite character in The Lord of the Rings, the best, best man in, the all, in, in all of Middle-earth. Well, we'll talk a little more about him next week, actually. We get precious little Faramir in tonight's reading. Next week, we get the big block of Faramir. I can't wait to discuss him in more depth. But that's not all that we get to discuss tonight. Rabbits and Oliphants are going to keep us company over the course of the next 90 minutes or so here on There and Back Again. It is a pleasure to have you all here this evening. We've got Jenna and Digital Janitor and Angela and Brian and, and our Faramir, of course, is here joining us and Nikki and all kinds of people here, including uh, Durin's Bane, son of Bard, who is joining us for the first time. Durin's Bane, it is a pleasure to have you here this evening. Before we get into our reading, though, there's a really interesting question. In this week's reading, in Rabbits and Oliphants, we look at chapters three and four of book four of The Lord of the Rings. The Black Gate is closed and of herbs and stewed rabbit. And we're going to be talking a lot about the geography of Mordor now that we are finally there. Mordor translated from the Sindarin, means black land, using the same suffix root as Arnor, land of kings, and Gondor, land of stone. Arnor, Gondor, Mordor were just kind of thematically consistent, if nothing else here in our naming. It was already a desolate and blasted land, a volcanic plain prior to the coming of quote-unquote civilization to this part of Middle-earth. It was blasted basically from the days of Melkor in an ancient prehistory, the ancient prehistory of, of Arda. The greatest natural feature of Mordor, besides the mountains which cover its northwest and southern flanks, is the great volcanic peak of Orodruin, known as Mount Doom. Orodruin is the common Sindarin name for Mount Doom. It means Fire Mountain. It's another one of these very literal names that the elves have given things over the years. There is another name used in Gondor for Mount Doom, Amon Amarth, meaning Mount Doom, but that seems to be retrofitted around the Westron, around the common speech name Mount Doom. Doom, as we have originally discussed, uh, as we have discussed here on there and back again, originally simply meant judgment in the sense of choice. Your doom is that judgment which awaits you. It has been used from Middle English onward, basically, but around the beginning of the 17th century, it took on a whole new meaning, the modern meaning of doom, meaning something grim and implacable and inevitable, the fate which awaits you, which is never good. That is because of the the utter dominance in, in popular culture at the time of the, the Christian notion of Judgment Day, right? The, the notion of doom came to mean something evil awaiting you because of this notion of Christian Judgment Day. Tolkien, of course, uses it in its oldest sense throughout The Lord of the Rings, and we use both the noun and verb form, which gives us the brilliant line from Master Elrond back in uh, the second chapter uh, of uh, the second book of The Fellowship of the Ring. That is the doom which we must deem, using both the noun form and the verb form. The noun form, doom, verb form, deem, right? That meaning of judgment, by the way, continues in the verb form. We still use to deem, meaning to decide or to judge or to evaluate to come to some conclusion regarding. So that's the original meaning of doom. But that opens up a really interesting question. Why is Mount Doom called Mount Doom? I am indebted to Baru over on the Point North Forum for this question. And the answer when you go looking, to, uh, looking for it is surprisingly thin, honestly. First, Mount Doom obviously is in the common speech, right? That is obviously a, a modern English transliteration of whatever language was actually spoken in Gondor and throughout the Western realms at this time in Tolkien's ancient history. 
It is used, in fact, specifically by Gondor. Let me, uh, by Gondorians. Let me call up. This is the quote from Boromir in the Council of Elrond, back in the Fellowship of the Ring. Boromir says, "The nameless enemy has arisen again. Smoke rises once more from a Rodruin that we call Mount Doom. The power of the Black Land grows, and we are hard beset. When the enemy returned, our folk were driven from Athelion, our fair domain east of the river." Brackets, we'll talk a little more about Athelion later in tonight's reading. Though we kept a foothold there and strength of arms, but this very year in the days of June, sudden war came upon us out of Mordor, and we were swept away. Smoke rises once more from a Rodruin that we call Mount Doom. And I wouldn't put it past Boromir to use a little rhetorical flourish here, expressing a kind of linguistic ownership or a linguistic possession of Mount Doom. I could also imagine Boromir, you know, now that he's talking to these uncultured northerners, saying something like, I traveled here to Rivendell by means of what the stalwart men of Gondor still refer to as roads. And I came here on the back of a great mounted beast, which we, the wise of the South, call horses. Like, I can imagine Boromir giving that kind of rhetorical flourish, whether or not the word, uh, the, the name Mount Doom was in common usage throughout. Um... But there does seem to be more to it than that. And when you go looking, uh, let me call up, uh, call up, let me hold up, in fact, uh, this book. I have here The Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion by Wayne G. Hammond and Christina Skull, which I use for reference quite often as I'm preparing these sessions. And within The Reader's Companion, you will find a copy of... uh, what was originally called The Guide to Names in The Lord of the Rings, and then the nomenclature of The Lord of the Rings, and then later just nomenclature. This was published, I believe, by Christopher Tolkien originally, uh, and was then kind of revised and republished in The Reader's Companion, which is a wonderful book. I highly, I highly recommend The Reader's Companion. But this is a collection of notes made by J.R.R. Tolkien following, I believe, the uh, the Danish and Swedish translations of The Lord of the Rings. He wanted to, he was upset with his publisher, honestly, for allowing any translator to touch the proper names contained within his work. And there's a rather snarky little note accompanying the nomenclature where he says, uh, who is qualified to do this? Which translator is qualified to change the names that I set out? But given that some of the names had to be changed for purposes of, of transparency and clarity, if nothing else, he went through step by step all of the character names, all of the place names, every significant, you know, uh, neologistic coinage that he had created for the purposes of the, Lord of the Lord of the Rings and gave an underlying account, explained why this thing was called, why it was called, and how then to translate it for the purposes of future translations. And this is the note accompanying Mount Doom. Quote, Mount Doom was in Gondor, the CS, the common speech name of the volcano Orodruin, meaning Mountain of Red Flame, but was also a translation of its other name, Amon Amarth, Hill of Doom, given to Sauron's Forge Mountain because it was linked in little understood prophecies with the doom that was foretold would befell when Isildur's bane came to light again. We don't know what those prophecies are, in part perhaps because lore wanes in Gondor, but we don't know what the origins of those prophecies were. But some prophet in Gondor apparently looked to the east and said, Behold, Orodruin, as the elves have it, but we shall call it Mount Doom. For when Isildur's bane comes again, there will be a great doom. Now, does that mean doom in the modern sense? In, a, in the sense that a great evil will befall us? Or does that mean doom in the archaic Middle English sense, there will be a great judgment? That was the root of Baru's question. And as I went looking, I decided not actually to speculate about the final meaning of Mount Doom and why this unnamed prophet of Gondor decided to call it Mount Doom, because I think 
that there may be a really interesting discussion to be had when we get to the very end of The Return of the King and we see what final events play out here within the pages of The Lord of the Rings and we can actually speculate about the notion of doom as judgment or as, as grim fate based on the data that we've amassed at that time. So I think we're going to put a large pin in that and circle back around to it in maybe, I don't know, six months or thereabouts when we're finally done with The Return of the King and we can really talk about the resolution of the story. But of course, that is not the only element in tonight's reading, which is looking forward to what comes at the very end of the book. Let's... Um, Let's move into this. I suppose we can talk about... Let's take the first slide. We'll take the first slide from uh, from Chapter 3, The Black Gate is Closed, in which we discover that, shock of all shocks, The Black Gate is actually closed. And then we're going to do uh, a little bit of vocabulary work, and we'll take a quick look at the map. Yes, um, everyone is here. Uh, doom, doom, doom is how Walter Simonson's Thor starts. Angela, actually, Tolkien talks about the onomatopoeic quality of doom as well with the falling of hammers. This is not a connection with Walt Simonson's Thor, of course, that wouldn't come out for many years after uh, after the professor had passed away, but is, of course, connected back to Anglo-Saxon myth and Norse myth, too, of this sense of, of doom and judgment, you know, the, the, the bringing down of a hammer, the bringing down of a gavel as the ceiling of a judgment. That is absolutely connected back to the onomatopoeic qualities of doom. He actually comments a lot about the, uh, about the ways in which that is onomatopoeically translated in, I think, the Swedish version specifically, where sometimes it is translated accurately, doom. Uh, Doom and boom are used properly in the Swedish, but sometimes it is the the dom and boom, I think, that, that is used instead, which he was less happy about. If you want to read probably the most pedantic piece of writing that Tolkien ever committed to paper in the, the entirety of his career, definitely go read the nomenclature at the back of The Reader's Companion. It is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Okay. Shane is asking where we're getting all these pins and what happens when we pull them. Well, to the best of my recollection, Shane, we have yet to pull a pin, so I don't actually know. I, I think that's the the other half of this metaphor that I should now include in my vocabulary. Let's, let's pull the pin that we inserted earlier, I think. Yeah, it's terrible. You know, every time I do one of these live sessions, I just become more and more aware of these linguistic shorthands that I resort to when I'm just trying to move the conversation forward and trying to advance the uh, the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> Jenna says, pedantic is not usually a word I associate with a good time. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you haven't read enough of the professor's writing. And Heroes and Bard says, the most pedantic, you say, that is certainly a feat. Yes, yes, yes. So let's get into chapter three. The black gate is closed. This comes from the uh, very beginning of this chapter. Before the next day dawned, their journey to Mordor was over. The marshes and the desert were behind them. Before them, darkling against a pallid sky, the great mountains reared their threatening heads. Upon the west of Mordor marched the gloomy range of Efelduath, the mountains of shadow, and upon the north the broken peaks and barren ridges of Ered Lethui, grey as ash. But as these ranges approached one another, being indeed but parts of one great wall about the mournful plains of Lithlad of Gorgoth and the bitter inland sea of Nurnan amidmost, they swung out long arms northward, and between these arms there was a deep defile. This was Kirith Gorgor, the haunted pass, the entrance to the land of the enemy. High cliffs lowered about them on each side, and thrust forward from its mouth were two sheer hills, black-boned and bare. Upon them stood the teeth of Mordor, two towers strong and tall. In days long past they were built by the men of Gondor in their pride and in their power, after the overthrow of Sauron and his flight, lest he should seek to return to his old realm. But the strength of Gondor failed, and men slept, and for long years the towers stood empty. Then Sauron returned. Now the watchtowers which had fallen into decay were repaired, and filled with arms and garrisoned with ceaseless vigilance. Stony-faced they were, with dark window holes staring north and east and west, and each window was full of sleepless eyes." Across the mouth of the pass, from cliff to cliff, the Dark Lord had built a rampart of stone. 
In it there was a single gate of iron, and upon its battlements sentinels paced unceasingly. Beneath the hills on either side, the rock was bored into a hundred caves and maggot holes. There a host of orcs lurked, ready at the signal to issue forth like black ants going to war. None could pass the teeth of Mordor and not feel their bite, unless they were summoned by Sauron or knew the secret passwords that would open the Moranon, the black gate of his land. The two hobbits gazed at the towers and the wall in despair. Even from a distance they could see in the dim light the movement of the black guards upon the wall and the patrols before the gate. They, they lay now, peering over the edge of a rocky hollow beneath the outstretched shadow of the northernmost buttress of Efelduath, winging the heavy air in a straight flight, a crow, maybe, would have flown but a furlong upon their hiding place to the black summit of the nearest tower. A faint smoke curled above it, as if fire smoldered in the hill beneath. Yes, as Seastar calls out that first line, yeah, the journey to Mordor was over isn't what we expect to read so early in the book. A little over the halfway point, in fact. And the journey to Mordor, we are assured, is over. And yet, so very much not over yet. So this gives us our introduction to the actual geography of Mordor, this realm of shadows about which you'll recall the hobbits know barely anything at all back when they are in the Shire. Even the, the distance to, even the direction in which the land of Mordor can be found is not commonly known among the hobbits back at the beginning of the story. But now Frodo and Sam and the company of Gollum have made their way there. Let me... Um, very quickly pull up here for you the interactive map, courtesy of our friends at lordoftheringsproject.com, lotrproject.com, just so I can give you a sense of how this actually works. You will see here in the middle of the the middle of the slide right at the top there, Daggerlad or the battle plane, that is where we saw, that is where we, we witnessed the final apocalyptic battle, the battle of the last alliance at the end of the second age that cast Sauron down. That is the battle in which Isildur cut the ring from his hand and, and banished the shadow apparently forever from Middle-earth. Turns out, not so much. Turns out that when you banish evil in Middle-earth, it generally comes back stronger in the end. Yes. So right underneath that, you can see Moranon. That is the Black Gate, literal translation. More Black Anon Gate. Black Gate, right there. That is the, the deep cleft here that allows entry into, into Mordor as a whole. South of that, along the spur of the Efelduath there, um, Efelduath is the Sindarin name, which literally means the... Um, the outermost fence, I suppose, like, like the perimeter fence of the Land of Shadow. So it's, it's the fence of shadows, effectively. The Efelduath there, uh, bounding Mordor on the western side. If we move down, you can follow that dotted line road into North Ithilien, which is the fertile land that exists between the Anduin and the mountains, right? This is where Osgiliath was founded, the, the old former capital of Gondor, which has now fallen into despair. To the western flank of Osgiliath, you can see Minas Tirith, the Tower of Guard. To the eastern flank, you can see Minas Morgul that has been conquered by Sauron and his forces these many long years and has now been transformed into the Tower of Evil Sorcery, Minas Morgul. This is the route that Frodo and Sam and Gollum ultimately are going to take. They're going to meet with Faramir in the northern part of that uh, forest that you can see there in North Ilion, right alongside the river where you can see uh, Kaer Andros right there. And then they are going to pass eventually into Kirith Ongol. You know, minor spoilers for the chapters to come, I suppose. Kirith Ongol is right there next to Minas Morgul. That is the path that they are going to take into, uh, into Mordor proper. You can see here, too, the northern mountains, the Ered Lithui. This is the Sindarin name for the, uh, the mountains of ash or the, the ashy 
ashen mountains, some kind of formulation thereof. Uh, and of course, we're going to be talking a little bit about Kirith Ungol. We're going to have a slide tonight, in fact, laying out Kirith Ungol for us. Kirith Ungol is, is Sindarin for uh, for the cleft of spiders or spiders cleft from Kirith, meaning meaning pass, I suppose, right? That That's the, the, the root form there. And Ungol, meaning spider in Sindarin, which is familiar to readers of the Silmarillion, of course, because that is the name of, or that is the, the, the word from which Ungoliant's name is derived. Ungoliant, the ancient dark spider who comes from the darkness around Arda, as the myths tell, right? Isn't even born of Middle-earth, but comes from actual space, comes from the darkness around the mortal world and enters into Arda um, to serve uh, Melkor, Morgoth, the, the original big bad back in the day, before finally seeking refuge at Nan, Nan Dungortheb, where, so the story goes, Ungoliant finally perishes after succumbing to her fearsome hunger and gluttony and consuming her own body, but not before Ungoliant creates a spawn of giant spiders, a brood of giant spiders, from which we are told the black spiders of Mirkwood eventually are descended. So we're tying back again and again and again, even in the middle of The Hobbit, where there's no real kind of conception of, of the earliest days of Arda's prehistory, certainly not the, the foundation stones of the Silmarillion, but even there, we're connecting back and back and back. So this is where we are. You can see here uh, the Sea of Nurnan and the Plains of Nurn, the Plateau of Gorgoth there. You can see Barad-dûr within the bounds of Mordor and, of course, Rodruin standing by itself, this, this giant volcanic peak. And there is a really interesting ongoing kind of um, discussion about whether or not Rodruin is the only volcano in Middle-earth. Seems to be at least ambiguous. Certainly it is the only firmly attested volcano that we can be absolutely confident about in, in you know, the span of, of Middle-earth, according to the Lord of the Rings. That's, that's pretty much where we are. Right. Okay. Spiders? What unusually large spiders, says Angela. Hey, Angela, stick around. Stick around for just a couple weeks, and then we'll be able to talk about giant spiders. Okay, let's get back to our slides. So that's our introduction to the task which now awaits. Having arrived at Mordor, Frodo and Sam look at the Black Gate and realize, oh, no, this is a terrible idea. This is the worst possible idea. There's just no way through here, except, of course, for Frodo's conviction that he will, in fact, find a way. Let's look at his conversation here with Gollum. I suppose it's no good asking, what may we do now? We can't go further unless we want to ask the orcs for a lift. No, no, said Gollum. No use. We can't go further. Smeagol said so. He said, we'll go to the gate and then we'll see. And we do see. Oh, yes, my precious, we do see. Smeagol knows hobbits could not go this way. Oh, yes, Smeagol knew. Then what the plague did you bring us here for, said Sam, not feeling in the mood to be just or reasonable. Master said so. Master says bring us to the gate so good Smeagol does so. Master said so. Wise master. I did, said Frodo. His face was grim and set, but resolute. He was filthy, haggard and pinched with weariness, but he cowered no longer and his eyes were clear. I said so, because I purpose to enter Mordor and I know no other way. Therefore I shall go this way. I do not ask anyone to go with me. No, no, master, wailed Gollum, pawing at him and seeming in great distress. No use that way, no use, don't take the precious to him. He'll eat us all if he gets it, eat all the world. Keep it, nice master, and be kind to Smeagol. Don't let him have it. Or go away, go to nice places and give it back to little Smeagol. Yes, yes, master, give it back, eh? Smeagol will keep it safe, he will do lots of good, especially to nice hobbits. Hobbits, go home, don't go to the gate. 
I am commanded to go to the land of Mordor, and therefore I shall go, said Frodo. If there is only one way, then I must take it. What comes after must come. Sam said nothing. The look on Frodo's face was enough for him. He knew the words of his were, he knew that words of his were useless. And after all, he had never had any real hope in the affair from the beginning. But being a cheerful hobbit, he had not needed hope as long as despair could be postponed. Now they were come to the bitter end. But he had stuck to his master all the way. That was what he had chiefly come for, and he would still stick to him. His master would not go to Mordor alone. Sam would go with him, and at any rate, they would get rid of Gollum. Yeah, Jenna calling out, if there is only one way, then I must take it. Wow, holy shit, yes. Frodo is ready to do the thing. Frodo standing here, suddenly suddenly affirmed in his actions, suddenly confident in the path before him, not believing, of course, that there is any hope. And of course, here, hey, look at that. We're getting the opportunity to pull out a pin, right? We put the pin in the question of hope, and particularly Sam's hope, in our last discussion. And now we get to pull that pin out, because now we get to talk about the fact that Sam never had any hope, not from the beginning, but being a cheerful hobbit. He could forestall despair. He didn't need to, in the words of Gandalf, accept the final fate beyond the shadow of a doubt. He didn't need to do that because his purpose, <coughs> excuse me, was always to be with Frodo, was always to accompany his master. That was the fullest extent of his purpose. And that was something that he could achieve, as we discussed last time, on an ongoing basis. He's not looking forward to his goal. He's realizing his goal right now, here, today, in the long road from Rivendell, all down through Holland and through the mines of Moria and out through Lothlorien and down the banks of the Anduin. And now across the, the, the desolate wasteland between the Anduin and the Black Gate itself, out through the, the Dead Marshes, Sam has been fulfilling his goal. He's been fulfilling his purpose. He has achieved everything that he set out to achieve. So he never had to embrace despair, despite the fact that he never really had hope. Because his task was never dependent on hope. His task was never going to be decided at some distant point in the future. His task was being fulfilled right from the beginning. But now Frodo, who, as we learned last time, is also bereft of hope. Frodo, who does not... Well, okay. Let's be clear for those of you who maybe missed out on last week's discussion. Frodo stated two hopes or, or two kind of... Two objectives here. The first, to destroy the ring in the, the cracks of doom. Well, okay, we have a slim hope. There's, there's a small chance that we can still accomplish that. The second task, the second objective, to return home safely, to get to his extraction point and get back home... There was no hope for that. He had never had hope for that. So now we face the hopeless possibility of the Black Gate, and Frodo is not deterred because that's the one good thing about despair. When hope is taken away from you and all that remains is resolution, you can act in the face of impossible odds. You can act in the face of, of utter certainty, in fact, because you never expected to win. You never expected to overcome. So it doesn't, in a sense... <sighs> I don't want to say it doesn't matter to Frodo. Of course it matters to Frodo, but he never expected this to be easy and never expected to survive it anyway. So yes, yes. As Heroes and Bards says, this entire passage is lovely hope in the darkest places. Hey, hope in the darkest places. And Heroes and Bards also saying a small amount of hope is not no hope at all. Yes, that is going to be our constant companion. That is going to be our our literally guiding star through the rest of the two towers that faint glimmer of hope in the night sky that is going to keep us moving forward and it will be a faint glimmer it will be bounded and surrounded and all but all but conquered all but vanquished by darkness by despair but still the hope endures still the hope leads us forward and we're going to see how that plays out for the rest of this reading 
So Gollum here admitting, yeah, no, there was never any hope of getting through the Black Gate, but you told me to lead you to the Black Gate, so here we are. This, this is it. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. Um, since there's no hope, though, no use. Don't take the precious to him. He'll eat us all if he gets it. Eat all the world. And that's disquieting. There's something in, in the totality of that, in the cosmic horror of that, that, that I find troubling. He will eat all of us if he gets it. Eat all the world. The shadow will fall and will, in a sense, in a metaphorical sense, be consumed by Sauron, right? This is the, the dominion that he seeks is utter and total and complete. The entire world will fall beneath the shadow and will, in a sense, be consumed. So look at what Gollum argues. Keep it, nice master, and be kind to Smeagol. Don't let him have it. First off, this is crazy. Don't go into Mordor. If you go into Mordor, he will eventually get the ring. It will eventually be returned to, I suppose, what is, in a sense, its rightful master. So don't do that first off. But there is another option. You could just go home. You could just give it to me. Keep it, nice master, and be kind to Smeagol. Don't let him have it. Or go away, go to nice places, and give it back to little Smeagol. Yes, yes, master, give it back. Eh? Smeagol will keep it safe. He will do lots of good, especially to nice hobbits. And there's the influence of the ring again. Does Smeagol believe that he will do good? Well, we saw what Smeagol would do with the power of the ring in last week's reading. He will eat fish fresh from the sea three times a day. Gollum the Great, the Gollum. That's his future. That's his fate. And there isn't, we'll, we'll have another opportunity to talk about this, so I don't want to delve into it too deeply here today. But it is true, too, I think, that Gollum's relationship with the ring has changed. And we might speculate about what has changed Gollum's relationship with the ring because two very powerful things have happened to Gollum after, you know, his, his, his <laughs> extended stay under the Misty Mountains came to an unceremonious end, I suppose, right? Bilbo Baggins stole the ring, took the ring, claimed the ring, took it away from Gollum, and Gollum was left without it. That's, you know, data point one. That's, that's extremely important in the life of Gollum slash Smeagol. But the other thing that happened was that for the first time, Smeagol came into contact with Sauron. He was captured and tortured in Barad-dûr and then escaped, then was, was released back out into the world. And he has now seen for the first time something which he didn't see for the 500 years that he was hiding under the Misty Mountains. He has seen the real power of the ring. Remember Frodo's discussion with Galadriel back in Lothlorien when Frodo says, so I've had the ring and uh, I've worn the ring a couple times. Don't want to go into it. Pretty scary. But I've worn the ring a couple times. I don't have much in the way of dominion, though, is the thing. I can't sense the other rings. I can't use it. Why does this ring, why does the one ring, this great and potent weapon of the enemy, the greatest and most potent weapon of the enemy, why does it only make me invisible? That seems weird. And Gladriel says, no, absolutely. You can use this to terrible effect, but first you must train your will in the domination of others. Gollum didn't know that that was possible. There's no reason to believe that Gollum knew that the ring was capable of anything more than invisibility when it was, you know, with him beneath the earth. He used it to hunt fish and to hunt goblins in the deepest tunnels, and that was all. But now he's been exposed to Sauron. He's been exposed to the host of Mordor. Now he knows the coming of the shadow, and he knows that the ring is pivotal. He knows that the ring is of crucial importance in this plan, and he is recognizing for the first time the power of the ring. This is why, in last week's reading, there is this argument between the Gollum side and the Smeagol side, right? Slinker and Stinker, as Sam will have it, or uh, the, the green light and the pale light within Gollum. This conflict emerges possibly for the first time, in that... 
when it emerges, it seems to have an undue influence over the Smeagol side of Gollum's personality at that point, right? That whole conversation, eat fish fresh from the sea three times a day. We can be, we can be Gollum the Great. We can be the Gollum. How amazing would that be? We can actually train our will to dominate. We can actually use the ring in its fullest power. Possessing the ring is now not enough for Gollum. And here, as he's expressing that thought, as he's succumbing to his desire for the ring, unwisely, he can't really imagine that Frodo's going to just, oh, I could go home? All right, Gollum, here you go. Be good. See you later. He can't really imagine that Frodo was going to do that. But even then, as he's trying to push for the ring, as he's trying to manipulate Frodo, look at what he's asking. Smeagol will keep it safe. He will do lots of good, especially to nice hobbits. Hobbits, go home. Don't go to the gate. You can give me the ring. I will keep it safe, eh? Dark Lord won't get it. Sauron is not going to get it. The, he will not eat the world. The shadow will not fall this day because I'm going to keep the ring and it's just going to be fine. But also, I'll do lots of good. I can use it to defend Gondor as Boromir wanted to. I can use it to preserve Lothlorien as Galadriel would have done. I can do good with the ring. He still now, even in this attempt to manipulate Frodo, is is revealing that he now understands the true power of the ring, not just as an artifact that he desires, not just as something that has its, its hooks into his soul, but as a, a tool that can be put to purpose. It's pretty terrifying. Yes. Yeah. Let me see here. Um, yeah, here's a Bard says, Gollum's great ambition is to eat fish. He's definitely related to hobbits. Yes. Though, as we were discussing earlier, it turns out uh, there was some discussion in the Crowdcast chat prior to beginning tonight's session about the nutritional value of rabbits and whether or not uh, human beings in the real world or hobbits in this fictional realm can survive just eating rabbits. And... Um, yeah, it seems like eating fish would get you into similar trouble, right? That that fish is probably very good for you, but not good for you in all the ways that food needs to be good for you. I imagine that that uh, he would need to supplement that a little bit, and did, of course, while he's under the Misty Mountains. We associate Lord of the Rings era golem with with the eating of of slimy things beneath the earth and the eating of uh, the eating primarily of fish, but also he would. Hunt doesn't even sound strong enough. He would predate upon goblins in the deep tunnels here of the Misty Mountains. And remember, when we're talking about the goblins of the Misty Mountains, in the frame of the Lord of the Rings, we're talking about orcs. These are not different species. We're talking about, you know, giant, hulking, terrifying, monstrous orcs. So, golems had a fairly varied diet, I suppose. Yeah, pretty, pretty bad. Okay, let's, yeah. As Ty points out, he also ate goblins, which is nasty. Yes. Brian the Green Knight. Excellent name in the Crabcast chat, Brian. Thank you for that. Someone needs to write the Gollum diet book. Everyone wants that sweet, sweet Gollum bod for New Year's resolutions. Oh, no one wants the Gollum bod. That's terrifying. Yes. All right. So let's keep going on. Uh, this is the conversation, obviously, between Frodo and Gollum that sets the stage for what comes next. This is a direct continuation of the last slide. In fact, Sam's thought that... Um, he never really had any hope. He's going to stick with his master. He's going to go with his master into Mordor. Seems hopeless, but hey, at least they'll be rid of Gollum. So, you know, bright side. Yes, we will probably be captured by orcs and taken to Barad-dûr and tormented by the Dark Lord, and then the world will fall into ruin and darkness. But, plus side, no more Gollum. Gollum, however, did not intend to be got rid of yet. He knelt at Frodo's feet, wringing his hands and squeaking, Not this way, master, he pleaded. There is another way. Oh, yes, indeed, there is another way. Darker, more difficult to find, more secret, but Smeagol knows it. Let Smeagol show you. Another way, said Frodo doubtfully, looking down at Gollum with searching eyes. Yes, yes, indeed, there was another way. Smeagol found it. Let's go and see if it's still there. You have not spoken of this before. 
No, Master did not ask. Master did not say what he meant to do. He does not tell poor Smeagol. He says, Smeagol, take me to the gate and then goodbye. Smeagol can run away and be good. But now, he says, I purpose to enter Mordor this way. So Smeagol is very afraid. He does not want to lose nice Master. And he promised. Master made him promise to save the precious. But Master is going to take it to him straight to the black hand if Master will go this way. So Smeagol must save them both. Then he thinks of another way that there was once upon a time. Nice master, Smeagol, very good, always helps. Sam frowned. If he could have bored holes in Gollum with his eyes, he would have done. His mind was full of doubt. To all appearances, Gollum was genuinely distressed and anxious to help Frodo. But Sam, remembering the overheard debate, found it hard to believe that long-submerged Smeagol had come out on top. That voice, at any rate, had not had the last word in the debate. Sam's guess was that the Smeagol and Gollum halves, or what in his own mind he called Slinker and Stinker, had made a truce and a temporary alliance. Neither wanted the enemy to get the ring. Both wished to keep Frodo from capture and under their eye as long as possible. At any rate, as long as Stinker still had his chance of laying hands on his precious. Whether there really was another way into Mordor, Sam doubted. And it's a good thing neither half of the old villain doesn't know what the master means to do, he thought. If he knew that Master Frodo was trying to put an end to his precious for good and all, it'd be some trouble pretty quick, I bet. Anyhow, old Stinker is so frightened of the enemy, and he's under orders of some kind from him, or was, then he'd give us away rather than be caught helping us, and rather than let his precious be melted, maybe. At least that's my idea. I hope the Master will think of it carefully. He's as wise as anybody, soft-hearted, that's what he is. It's beyond any gamgee to guess what he'll do next. Frodo construing, uh, sorry, Sam construing Frodo's response here as being soft-hearted, while acknowledging, of course, his his unimpeachable wisdom. Frodo absolutely wise, and Sam will give us an account in just a moment of, of Frodo being the wisest hobbit in the Shire, that he is, is unusually wise, even by the standards of hobbit kind, but he's soft-hearted. Sam is construing Frodo's response to Gollum as a kindness, as an empathy, as a kind of pity, but an impractical kind of pity, an unpragmatic kind of pity, an indulgent kind of pity that can only lead to disaster. Sam is failing to recognize the virtue of pity for what it is, and he's certainly failing to recognize the incomplete nature of that pity. That Frodo isn't just isn't just condescending to Gollum, but is recognizing a kinship with Gollum. It isn't just pity, it is also empathy. He is recognizing within Gollum that shadow that lurks now within him, that, that coldness that has been laid upon him by the carrying of the ring and, of course, by the, the wound caused by the Morgul blade back on Weathertop too. So there is another way. And Smeagol here making the argument, you told me to take you to the Black Gate, I took you to the Black Gate. You didn't say, take me to the Black Gate so that I can go into Mordor. If you'd said that, I would have said, A, terrible idea, B, Actually, there's another way. Actually, there's a thing that we can maybe try. It's a long shot, but there is a secret path into Mordor. And then we get Sam's response. If he could have bored holes in Gollum with his eyes, he would have done. His mind was full of doubt. To all appearances, Gollum was genuinely distressed and anxious to help Frodo. But Sam, remembering the overheard debate, found it hard to believe that the long-submerged Smeagol had come out on top. Slinker and Stinker were in conflict, and Sam cannot believe that Slinker won out. Even those names, right? Slinker and Stinker. He is not recognizing a moral division within Gollum. He is not recognizing a a little angel on one shoulder and a little demon on the other shoulder. For Gollum, he is recognizing two different kinds of bad. There's the devious kind, the Slinker, and there's the outright malicious kind, the Stinker. These two halves may be in conflict, but neither one of them is arguing for the good. Neither one of them is actually going to be 
is actually going to redeem Gollum. He does not see the hope. Slim hope is not no hope. He, he can't see the hope within Gollum for redemption, even though Frodo both can and arguably, by inference, as we discussed last week, needs to, right? There's this, this overlapping, this, this almost... Um, this almost symmetry between the the pity and the empathy that Frodo feels for for uh, for Gollum, and this is interesting too because, well, okay, <laughs> hey, get out your pin cushions. We're going to need a big pin for this one. But by the time we get to Kirith Ungol, there is going to be a moment when Sam is in open conflict with himself. Though whether or not he is actually in open conflict with himself, or we have one of the most interesting. Insights into underlying theology within the realm of Arda is something that we'll discuss when we'll get there. But there is going to be a moment when Sam seems to be at least in conflict with himself, when he has an internal discussion very similar to one of Gollum's internal discussions, except that Sam doesn't have a bad side. There are two good forces warring within Sam, trying to decide the course of action that he must take when we get to uh, Kirith Ungol. We'll get to all of that in the future, yes. As Angela says, Slinker and Stinker can't be trusted or redeemed to Sam. Yes. Good. Good. Um, let me see. Uh, what's, okay. Seastar is talking about an audiobook. Uh, I'm trying to get back here. My audiobook pronounces the second G in Gamgee the same as the first. Gamgee? Gamgee? Oh, I don't love Gamgee. That sounds very bad. Yes. <laughs> in combination with Samweza. Samweza Gamgee. I don't love it, you guys. I don't love it. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I'm now not concerned at all about mispronouncing Smeagol consistently through the uh, through the second half of the Two Towers. That, that doesn't seem important now because I'm at least pronouncing Samwise Gamgee right. I hope it's right. If it is Gamgee, then I'm afraid I'm just going to have to, I don't know, just decide to be wrong. That, that's what I'll do. I'll just embrace my wrongness. I will stand here in my wrongness and get used to it. And that, that we'll just go forward from there. Yes. yes. Gamgee sounds like what they call Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development, observes Brian the Green Knight. I completely agree. Yes. The, as Digital Janitor points out, better than Jamgee. Right. Um, this is the GIF-GIF conversation all over again, isn't it? That's just where we found ourselves now in the middle of, a, the middle of this episode of, of There and Back Again. <laughs> saying, stand there in your wrongness and be wrong. <laughs> yes, little uh, little West Wing for us all. That's fine. That's fine. Which, of course, you know, if you're going to talk about Sam's, the West Wing's not a bad place to go. Uh, Heroes and Bard says, I actively hate that pronunciation. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's, that's very bad. That's very bad. Okay, let's, um, <laughs> let's keep going onward here. Um, so this is our, our reveal of another way. But Frodo was not done just yet with Smeagol. Smeagol, he said, I will trust you once more. And it's, indeed, it seems that I must do so, and that is my fate to receive help from you where I least looked for it, and your fate to help me whom you have long pursued with evil purpose. So far you have deserved well of me and have kept your promise truly. Truly, I say and mean, he added with a glance at Sam, for twice now we have been in your power, and you have done no harm to us. Nor have you tried to take from me what you once sought. May the third time prove the best. But I warn you, Smeagol, you are in danger." Yes, yes, master, said Gollum. Dreadful danger. Smeagol's bones shake to think of it, but he doesn't run away. He must help, nice master. I did not mean the danger we all share, said Frodo. I mean a danger to yourself alone. You swore a promise by what you call the precious. Remember that. It will hold you to it, but it will seek a way to twist it to your own undoing. Already you are being twisted. You revealed yourself to me just now, foolishly. Give it back to Smeagol, you said. Do not say that again. Do not let that thought grow in you. You will never get it back. 
but the desire of it may betray you to a bitter end. You will never get it back. In the last need, Smeagol, I should put on the precious, and the ma precious mastered you long ago. If I wearing it were to command you, you would obey, even if, even if it were to leap from a precipice, precipice. Excuse me, I don't know why I can't pronounce the words tonight. If I wearing it were to command you, you would obey, even if it were to leap from a precipice or to cast yourself into the fire. And such would be my command. So have a care, Smeagol. You know, for example, to leap from a precipice and fall into a fire. Just two random examples that I pulled from my imagination. Those are just two things that just occurred to me randomly, Smeagol. It's very difficult to talk about this and not look ahead to the end of the book and to wonder whether or not Frodo is possessed here of some, some prophetic insight. And crucially, this is not the last time that we're going to circle back around to this idea, right? We're going to circle back around to this right before events ultimately play out in tragic fashion. We're going to we're going to revisit this specific notion, the idea of the command of the ring over Gollum, right before the end of the book happens, I suppose, or if not the end of the book, then at least the conclusion of our primary plot. Here, Frodo is recognizing something absolutely critical. This is where the pity and the empathy smash into each other, right? So far you have deserved well of me and have kept your promise truly. Truly I say and mean, he added with a glance at Sam. Hey, by the way, pay attention. Sam, Gollum's been fine. He has followed the word of his promise. For twice now we have been in your power and you have done no harm to us. Nor have you tried to take from me what you once sought. May the third time prove the best. Third time's a charm, basically, coming back to that old English. Which I discovered just this last week in the context of... Um, in the context of my Between Worlds class, which I give every Monday night on uh, folklore and fairy and the traditions of fantasy, I actually discovered that this notion of the third time being the charm comes to us in the English language from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, from the, the Middle English rendition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which I found absolutely fascinating. I didn't know the, the origins in English of that particular phrase specifically or that particular underlying thought and superstition, but there it is. I, I found that absolutely fascinating. I mean, the third time proved the best is what he is saying, but I warn you, Smeagol, you are in danger and Gollum reacts as you would expect Gollum to react and Frodo says no no not from Mordor not from the Dark Lord not from this host of orcs not even from this impassable terrain not from the dangers that we all share you are in a very specific kind of danger Smeagol and I am the only one who understands it you swore a promise by what you call the precious remember that it will hold you to it but it will seek a way to twist it to your own undoing already you are being twisted which seems to be Frodo acknowledging perhaps empathically, perhaps, to just, just uh, discerning this within Gollum, this conflict within Gollum. This seems to be Frodo understanding that the two halves of Smeagol are both, in a sense, being twisted by the ring, that there is a presence within Gollum, that the, the Gollum side is trying to push back against the Smeagol side, and that that is connected to the presence, to the, the, the voice, to the agency of the ring. You revealed yourself to me just now, foolishly. Give it back to Smeagol, you said. Do not say that again. Do not let that thought grow in you. And we are invited, I think, here to question Frodo's motive here. I think a very simple reason, a very simple explanation for this conversation is that Frodo wants to keep Smeagol on a very short leash, right? He understands that Gollum could turn on them at any moment, but he wants to extend this trust. He wants to extend this, this pity. He wants to cling to whatever fleeting, vanishing hope there is that the ring can ultimately be destroyed. But we mustn't forget 
Frodo's self-identification with Gollum, Frodo's understanding of what Gollum is going through, and the increasing weight of the ring, right? We discussed this last week, the, the ring weighing physically on him now, dragging him down toward the earth, this constant pressure on him, this constant temptation on him, as well as, of course, the influence of the ring itself in his psyche, this, this turning of Frodo's spirit to something darker, something more dominant, right? Which we'll get to in just a moment, right at the end of this paragraph. Do not let that thought grow in you. Smeagol, you, me, neither of us can succumb to the influence of the ring. Do not let that thought grow in you. You will never get it back, but the desire of it may betray you to a bitter end. You will never get it back. He's emphasizing this as forcibly as he absolutely can. The repetition there is, is clear and stark. In the last need, Smeagol, if, if things go bad, if you do turn on me, if you do try and get the ring back, you are not that smart. If you try and get it back, I will put it on and it has been your master these many long years. It dominated you long ago. It mastered you long ago. If I wearing it were to command you, you would obey. Which brings us back, of course, to that aforementioned discussion with Galadriel back in Lothlorien. Why can't I use the ring the way that Sauron can theoretically use the ring? Well, because you haven't practiced your will. You haven't practiced your will in the domination of others. Well, Frodo doesn't seem to hesitate now. If I wearing it were to command you... Though, okay, let's preserve a little bit of ambiguity here, right? Um, in the last need, Smeagol, I should put on the precious and the precious mastered you long ago. In the last need, does Frodo mean if things break bad, I will choose to put the ring on and, and command you? Or is Frodo recognizing that if things break bad, the ring will compel me to put it on? Is the Frodo who is theoretically, hypothetically commanding Smeagol to leap from a precipice or into a fire, is that Frodo really Frodo? Is he using the ring or is he dominated by the ring in that moment? What hope do we have still for Frodo at the end of this long journey? Okay, let's... Um Gosh, let's keep moving forward because, wow, we're uh, <laughs> we're not making as much progress as I would have liked. I'm scrolling back through the chat here. Oh, Galadrabeki is joining us tonight. Excellent. Hello, Galadrabeki. Galadrabeki says, I think Frodo was not claiming violent feelings toward Gollum, but he's recognizing the ring will influence him in that direction if he wears it to combat a betrayal by Gollum. That's certainly, I think, a valid reading, Galadrabeki. I think that, that's a reading which appeals to me in its specificity, Right? There are two hobbits here and one golem. And yes, golem is treacherous and strong and capable and knows the land around them and can betray them probably pretty trivially, right? That seems obvious to, to Frodo. But Frodo doesn't turn to the elven rope. Frodo doesn't turn to his, you know, his blade. He doesn't turn to any of the things that he has which can intimidate Gollum, that can assure him of Gollum's good behavior, which is one of the things that makes me think that he's not entirely talking about Gollum. He's also talking a little bit about himself here. We're talking about the danger of the ring. The real danger that we are facing, Gollum, you and me, the real danger that we are facing right now doesn't come from outside. It comes from within. It is the voice of the ring. It is the, the temptation of the ring. And I, I do believe that Frodo here is at least, if not addressing himself, at least acknowledging that that temptation and that pressure within him. Even his mode of speech, his mode of address is so much more commanding now than it has ever been before. So much more commanding than it even was in last week's reading. This is Frodo the ruler. This is Frodo acting and speaking with a real authority, not the gentle authority of the gentle hobbit, right? This isn't this isn't a shire-like nobility that we are seeing from Frodo now. He's not speaking as a member of a higher social order than Samwise Gamgee, for example. Here he is speaking as someone possessed of actual, unbreakable authority, and he recognizes the root of that authority. If this should go bad, 
I will put on the ring, and then I will have utter mastery over you, Gollum. There is no alternative. You will never get it back. Um, yes, Jackie's saying someone referred to this as foresight, something an elf friend could very well possess. Yeah, no, Jackie, that's a really great pull. Um, there's a thesis paper to be written, right? There's, there's a book to be written probably on... I mean, prophecy in general in The Lord of the Rings. We've talked about this before in the context of Aragorn. We've talked about this before in, in that kind of kingly prophetic ability that is so often associated with, with kings in the medieval period, something that, that Professor Tolkien absolutely respected and, and brought into his secondary creation here. But it also seems to be true of Frodo. Frodo has surprising insights as he's moving through the book, surprising realizations as he moves forward. So that's too still present. Yeah, good. Good. Um, oh, as Variag of Khand points out, a danger to our souls, not our lives. Yes, yes. Oh, and Jenna's saying this is the Frodo, like the Gollum, maybe. Uh, maybe not quite. Maybe, maybe we're not quite there yet. Frodo still is resisting. He's resisting the voluntary adoption of the ring's power, right? He, he's not embracing the ring's power. He doesn't want it for its own sake. He's still recognizing that the use of the ring is contingent on the most dire of circumstances. If this goes bad, in the last need, Smeagol, I should put on the precious. In the last need, not even if necessary, if you turn on us. It's entirely possible that if Smeagol turns on them, he will use the elven rope or will use his blade or will have Sam, I don't know, do something unspeakable to Gollum with, with pots and pans. I have no idea. But but he would take other steps first. But then in the last need, if all else fails, Smeagol, I have I have a trick up my sleeve that you cannot combat, that you cannot overcome. Yeah. Good. And Heroes and Bards asking an excellent question here. Is the insight is the insight Frodo's though, or does it come from his connection to the dark via the ring and the Morgul blade wound? Possibly. Possibly, yes. Certainly, we don't see this kind of prophecy from other hobbits, but then Frodo is special, you know? Frodo also, simultaneously, is closer to the Wraith world, closer now than he has ever been... Well, okay, not closer now than he has ever been before. He has been much closer to the Wraith world for very short periods of time, but in an extended way, on a on a on an ongoing basis, he is now closer to the Wraith world than he has ever been before, as he what falls under the influence of the ring is still having the Morgul wound working within him is now closer to Mordor. The shadow is deepening and lengthening. You know, we've talked about this in the context of the Nazgul and the, the emergent power of the ring. As we move through this book, the ring literally gets more dangerous. And I don't think that that's just a narrative conceit. I think that as its time draws nearer, as it gets closer to Mordor, as Sauron's influence grows, the connection between Sauron and the ring, just the amount of latent power in the world, dark power in the world is in increasing so the ring gets more powerful so the Nazgul get more powerful so dark tidings start spreading right there are smarter trolls now in the world and all kinds of other things so that I think is is completely consistent yeah yeah um Jackie is saying Frodo has the gift of foresight and it's heightened by the darkness he's been exposed to that I think is where I would come down with it um if if I had to anchor Frodo's foresight in Frodo and I'm not at all sure that we do have to anchor his foresight in him personally. There may be other influences acting on Frodo. We know now that those influences are not, you know, Gandalf is not speaking to Frodo at this point because Gandalf has lost track of Frodo and has lost track of the ring and doesn't know where they are and can't find them, can't discern their presence in the world. So we know that Gandalf is not consciously speaking to Frodo, but is there another influence that is speaking to Frodo? I mean, Frodo has had mostly in the form of dreams, but prophetic dreams before, right? As Bilbo before him had prophetic dreams before. So perhaps this is connected to this particular Hobbit bloodline, or it's connected to the possession of the ring. 
we can't say for sure, but Frodo certainly does seem to have some sense of the shape of the future, particularly in moments which are, are heightened. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on to Kirith Ungol itself. Its name was Kirith Ungol, a name of dreadful rumor. Aragorn could perhaps have told them its name and its significance. Gandalf would have warned them. But they were alone, and Aragorn was far away, and Gandalf stood amid, the ruin, stood amid the ruin of Isengard and strove with Saruman, delayed by treason. Yet even as he spoke his last words to Saruman and the Palantir crashed in fire upon the steps of Orthanc, his thought was ever upon Frodo and Samwise. Over the long leagues his mind sought for them in hope and pity. Maybe Frodo felt it, not knowing, as he had upon Amon Han, even though he believed that Gandalf was gone, gone forever into the shadow and Moria far away— he sat upon the ground for a long while, silent, his head bowed, striving to recall all that Gandalf had said to him. But for this choice, he could recall no counsel. Indeed, Gandalf's guidance had been taken from them too soon, too soon, while the dark land was still very far away. How they should enter it at the la- excuse me, how they should enter it at the last, Gandalf had not said. Perhaps he could not say. Into the stronghold of the enemy in the north, into Dol Guldur, he had once ventured. But into Mordor? To the mountain of fire, into Barad-dur, since the Dark Lord rose in power again? Had he ever journeyed there? Frodo did not think so. And here he was, a little halfling from the Shire, a simple hobbit of the quiet countryside, expected to find a way where the Great Ones could not go, or dared not go. It was an evil fate. But he had taken it on himself in his own sitting room in the far-off spring of another year, so remote now that it was like a chapter in a story of the world's youth, when the trees of silver and gold were still in bloom. This was an evil choice. Which way should he choose? And if both led to terror and death, what good lay in choice? Luckily, we know what good lies in choice, because we've had this discussion before in The Lord of the Rings. We've had this discussion before in the pages of The Hobbit. This goes back through the Two Towers, specifically, all the way back to those opening moments of The Two Towers, when Aragorn cries out, dismayed that all of his choices have gone awry. And then again, when we begin Book 4 with Frodo and Sam, Frodo too laments that all of his choices have been for ill. Things have been going bad, and things have been going from bad to worse. And every time they make a choice... They falter. Every time they make a choice, it seems to be the wrong choice. It seems to be evil chance that influences their decision. And yet, and yet, here they are. Their journey to Mordor is over. Was over at the beginning of the chapter, in fact. They are closer now to accomplishing their goal than they have ever been. And nothing actually, meaningfully, permanently impedes them. The making of the choice is what matters. The making of the right choice. Yes, certainly it's not true that we should we should dash on recklessly. You know, this is this is no Frodo rushes in moment here. Frodo does have to make a choice and he does have to consider that choice. Just as Aragorn considered the choice whether or not he should pursue the ring bearer and his servant toward the mountains of Mordor itself or go after the hobbits that had been taken by the orcs at Parthgallon. He considered and made the kingly choice. He made the right choice. The only choice that Aragorn, son of Arathorn, could make. And now Frodo has to make his choice. Bereft of counsel, bereft of guidance, could Gandalf have told him how to get into Mordor? No, almost certainly not. Gandalf would have arrived at the Black Gate and said, well, damn. But Gandalf would have had a faith that Frodo has displayed intermittently. Remember, in last week's reading, Frodo is convinced that there will be a way. A way will open for him. He is doomed to go to Mordor. In, in the, well, I suppose in both the medieval and the modern senses of the word, he is doomed to go to Mordor, to bear the ring to Mordor. And he believes 
that a way will open for him. And his only concern is, is this a path of good or ill? Will, will good or evil bring this way to him? Will good or evil reveal this to him? And now it's more complicated than ever because Gollum, a creature of evil, is now possessed apparently of the spark of good. There is a hope for Gollum, so Frodo believes at this moment. And that spark was kindled by an act of grace, by an act of pity from Gollum himself, uh, for Gollum himself. So good and evil is more complex now than it has ever been. But still, a little hobbit from the Shire, a simple hobbit of the quiet countryside expected to find a way where the great ones could not go or dared not go. It was an evil fate, but he had taken it on himself in his own sitting room in the far off spring of another year. And of course, we get the uh, brief mention there of stories, which will become all the more relevant as we move forward. Yeah. Frodo rushes in where a starry fear to tread. Not really, says he's starry. Yes, not really. <laughs> yes. Um... Yeah, Aragorn might have been able to tell him, says Jackie. Yes, I love this reference. I love as we pull back here. I love the way that the narrative voice pulls back because we're getting the, the, the brief description from Gollum, right, immediately prior to this. And then the narrator intrudes. The narrator just taps his lectern and says, its name was Kirith Ungol, the name of dreadful rumor. Aragorn could perhaps have told them its name and its significance. Gandalf would have warned them, but they were alone. And we pull all the way back, right? We, we dispense with the, the veil of narrative structure here. And for one of the first times in the entire book, the narrator actually draws us across the many leagues, separating these two chains of, of circumstance, these two sequences of events here. We cut all the way out to Gandalf standing on the steps at Orthanc with the Palantir about to be cast down on him from above. You know, choices made there too. Saruman's choice and Gandalf's choice and Wormtongue's choice to cast down the Palantir in the first place. Choices are everywhere. Choices are a constant in The Lord of the Rings. One of the most I think trivial and, and, and relatively trite observations about the Lord of the Rings, or criticisms of the Lord of the Rings, usually from people who haven't read the Lord of the Rings, is that these characters just bounce from plot point to plot point to plot point. Like everything is, is foreordained. You know, the eagles are coming. Well, isn't that convenient? Isn't that great? But the truth is that those moments of eucatastrophe, those moments of actual intrusive grace of, of, of faith and of belief and of the underlying goodness of the created world, those moments are so few and far between in the course of the major moments. Anyway, most of the action of the Lord of the Rings, most of the action of the Hobbit too, to a lesser extent, admittedly, but still a surprising extent, is anchored in the choices of the characters. And those choices are almost never easy. They're almost never simple choices. You know, we can track this back all the way through, through the chapters that we've already covered in the Lord of the Rings. And here again, Frodo is faced with another choice. Not, should I go on? But how should I go on? Is this thing that is being presented to me good or evil? Where, what is its provenance? How does it come? And ultimately, of course, for us, privileged as we are to sit in our, our, our living rooms and our, our offices and, and to think about Frodo's journey, we can be pretty confident, actually, that because the world is what the world is, if he takes the choice and acts in good faith, there will be goodness. Goodness will come from it. It may not be a goodness that allows Frodo and Sam to survive. It may not be comfortable. It may not be easy, but there will be a goodness. That's how the world works. We've seen that absolutely consistently throughout the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Good. Okay. Let's, um, let's keep moving onward here. Um, yes, uh, we're getting a question here. Uh, let me see as I scroll back to try and catch it up. I think, was it, was it Durin's Bane? Oh, I lost it. The Crowdcast chat is moving so fast. Um, oh, yes, Durin's Bane is asking, but the narrator is Frodo's POV, right? After the fact, 
Yes, after the fact, that is true. Uh, this book will be written by Frodo, and then it will be adapted by other writers, up to and including Professor Tolkien. That's the kind of, that's the, the fictional conceit for the, the construction of the story. So yes, but Frodo at that moment does not know what is going on. So still the, the narrative voice, even if that is Frodo from the, the comfort of, you know, 10 years thereafter, is, is still interesting and is still compelling. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Let's uh, <laughs> let's take a hard pivot, shall we? Let's just leave behind all this talk of good and evil and despair and woe and hopelessness and all the other things that we associate with the Two Towers and take just a moment, and I really do have just a moment, to talk about Sam's Oliphant poem. Sam stood up, putting his hands behind his back, as he always did when speaking poetry, and began. Gray as a mouse, big as a house, nose like a snake, I make the earth shake. As I trap through the grass, trees crack as I pass. With horns in my mouth, I walk in the south, flapping big ears beyond count of years. I stump round and round, never lie on the ground, not even to die. Oliphant am I, biggest of all, huge, old, and tall. If ever you'd met me, you wouldn't forget me. If you never do, you won't think that I'm true. But old Oliphant am I. And I never lie. This is another example, as you might guess, right? The Oliphant poem always stands out to me when I'm, I'm reading The Lord of the Rings. And I know from discussions with many other readers of The Lord of the Rings that it stands out to them too. It is a nice bit of shadowing for the uh, for the events in the next chapter. We'll, we'll kind of get back to Oliphants at the end of tonight's reading. But it is also, as you might expect, a pre-existing piece of poetry. This is a piece of poetry that was written by Professor Tolkien in the early 1920s. It was known as, <laughs> and you'll have to forgive his faux medieval here, Iombo, or Ye Kinde of Ye Oliphant, was written by Tolkien in, uh, I think, 22 or 23. I'm not exactly sure of the specific date there, but early in the 1920s, and was then published in a volume entitled Adventures in Unnatural History and Medieval Meters in 1927. So this is another piece, of, and was then published in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil and was, was published in other places, the, the longer extended version of this poem. Um, and Tolkien loves recycling his poetry. So he takes it and he simplifies it and he removes some references to the contemporary world or even the medieval world so that it sits more comfortably in the fictional frame of The Lord of the Rings. And then, of course, he gives it to Sam. And we get this wonderful vision of Sam standing with his hands clasped behind his back as he always does when speaking poetry, which is just a gorgeously... Uh, ungainly and inelegant construction when speaking poetry. It's just lovely. And then, of course, we get the poem itself, which is pretty simple, pretty transparent. You know, um, there are a few little details here that we can pull out. Uh, never lie on the ground, not even to die, Oliphant am I. The idea that elephants never lay down, not true, by the way, in real life. But the idea that elephants never lay down was actually part of the medieval concept of elephants, right? The stories of elephants that came all the way from, from India in particular at that time included the idea that they never lay down. So that's why the medieval perception here is being, being propagated by Sam. What is most interesting, I think, about this particular poem is that it isn't hobbity or at least it isn't in that typical hobbit construction. It isn't... It isn't as regular and as rhythmic as the other. I mean, it is extremely regular and rhythmic, of course, but it isn't regular and rhythmic in the same way. It doesn't observe the same meter or the same form as the other Hobbit poems that we've had throughout The Lord of the Rings. Think of, you know, the Bath Song or any number of, of Hobbit poems that we get throughout The Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit. Um, 
It doesn't quite conform to that same structure, and that seems to be because it is a child's poem. It isn't intended for the mature and sophisticated hobbit about town. It is actually intended for very young hobbits. It's intended for children, which is why these lines are shorter and simpler, and the rhyme scheme is that much more structural, right? The the rhyme scheme is almost the entire poem here. You could actually distill out a lot of the, the other words from the poem and you would still be left with something that is kind of emblematic of an elephant. Mouse, house, snake, shake, grass, pass, mouth, south, ears, years, round, ground. I mean, and so on and so forth. So it's an elemental poem. I really quite like it. Unfortunately, I just don't have a lot of time to, to talk about it now. This is, uh, uh, yes, Nikki is asking, is that why you see these awful medieval pictures of elephants, lions, and other wild animals? Did they have no idea what they actually looked like? Nope, they absolutely didn't. Um, and again, this is something that I think is, is, is difficult for modern audiences to kind of wrap their heads around. We don't think about how... I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't sound judgmental and, and really rather dismissive and condescending and vile, actually. Um, we don't think about how difficult travel was. Let's put it that way, right? We don't think about how difficult travel was or how rarely people traveled for most of human history. Up until, you know, really the 16th century, the 17th century even, really, we just don't think about how stationary populations were. Very few people traveled, and those people really didn't travel long distances, not on any kind of regular basis. Individuals, of course, individuals would cover huge distances. You know, we have Viking longships coming all the way across the Atlantic to the Americas and so on and so forth. I mean, yes, individual instances, yes, but there wasn't standardized or expected mass transit. People just didn't move around. And if people don't move around, then we lose the primary means of, of the propagation of stories, right? And, and of course, I'm saying stories here, not in the fictional sense, but in the kind of, in the, um, in the communicative sense. It would have taken decades, decades for stories to pass from the Indian subcontinent or from Africa to Western Europe, right? It would have taken lifetimes for these stories to pass. 20 miles at a time from one traveler to another, to another, to another, to another. These stories would have passed through hundreds of people and uh, as, they, as they passed across the continent here, uh, passed across the surface of the world here. So it's no surprise at all that the stories, by the time they get to, you know, the bards and scholars of Western Europe are completely ridiculous, are, are oftentimes, you know, completely misleading, are one half story, one half myth, one half, you know, uh, I just realized I'm, I'm now referencing three halves, one half story, one half myth, let's say that. Um, and also, of course, that there weren't photographs, there weren't even, you know, there wasn't ready documentation. So it wasn't even the case that, that there were innumerable sketches of elephants that just for some reason never made it across the Mediterranean. Like, that's not the case. There just weren't sketches. Like, no one drew for the pleasure of drawing until the medieval period. And when the medievalists in Western Europe sat down, in, in, in France and in Germany and in Britain in particular, sat down and started codifying and, and classifying the entire natural world. They, medievalists loved categorizing stuff. It was like their favorite pastime. You know, they didn't have Netflix and they didn't have YouTube, so we'll just sit around and classify things. Does that sound good? How about we gather the family together or we gather the entire village together or we gather the university together or the, the, the monastery together and we just come up with a really good taxonomy. How does that sound for a Thursday night? Pretty good, huh? Medievalists loved classifying things, so they were active in their attempts to categorize the entire accumulated, you know, population of the world, but they just weren't 
depending upon good solid data. So they were doing the best that they could with bad data is effectively what I'm saying. And now I spent five minutes talking about this and this is crazy. So now we definitely need to keep, uh, now we definitely need to keep pushing on. Right. Okay, good. <coughs> Excuse me. As, as Galadra Becky points out too, travel was quite dangerous. Yes. And, and when you were traveling and it was so difficult and so costly and so, so outright dangerous, you'd be inclined to to tell a better story, right? I mean, if your popularity in the town that you arrive at, if the sales of your goods, if, if your, your ability to conduct whatever business you were conducting meant anything, I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd elaborate on your stories a little bit. You'd exaggerate things. So that would kind of play into that, that idea, yeah. Good, okay, let's keep moving on. That is the end of chapter three into chapter four, of which we have... Seven slides in 25 minutes. This is going to be fun. Let's see what we can do here. Traveling once more at the beginning of chapter four of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. The day passed uneasily. They lay deep in the heather and counted out the slow hours in which there seemed little change, for they were still under the shadows of the Eiffel Duath and the sun was veiled. Frodo slept at times, deeply and peacefully, either trusting Gollum or too tired to trouble about him. But Sam found it difficult to do more than doze, even when Gollum was plainly fast asleep, whiffling and twitching in his secret dreams. Hunger, perhaps, more than mistrust, kept him wakeful. He had begun to long for a good homely meal, something hot out of the pot. As soon as the land faded into the formless grey under the coming night, they started out again. In a little while, Gollum led them down on the southward road, and after that they went on more quickly, though the danger was greater. Their ears were strained for the sound of hoof or foot on the road ahead or following them from behind, but the night passed and they heard no sound of walker or rider. The road had been made in a lost time, and for perhaps thirty miles below the Moranon it had been newly repaired, but as it went south the wild encroached upon it. The handiwork of man of old could still be seen in its straight, sure flight and level course. Now and again it cut its way through hillside slopes, or leapt over a stream upon a wide, shapely arch of enduring masonry. But at last all signs of stonework faded, save for a broken pillar here and there, peering out of bushes at the side or old paving stones still lurking amid weeds and moss. Heather and trees and bracken scrambled down and overhung the banks, or sprawled out over its surface. It dwindled at last to a country cart road little used, but it did not wind. It held on its own sure course and guided them by the swiftest way. This, of course, a... Um uh, an echo of a common feature in British landscapes, even British landscapes to this day, the traces left by the Roman roads that were laid out across Britain and, of course, all across Western Europe too, this straight, sure flight of the road. And we see here, too, the decline and the fall. These roads were built by great men. They, they carved across hillsides and, and straight over streams with, with elegant bridges of, of, of masonry that still endures thousands of years later. This masonry still endures. These are signs, of course, that we are moving now from the blasted lands to the north of Mordor into Ithilien itself. This, this fertile, fertile veil here between the Anduin and the mountains to the east. Um, so we're moving into the realm of the men of Numenor, not directly the men of Numenor, but of course, but the original uh, exiles from Numenor, the survivors of Numenor who established the kingdom of Gondor in the first place. But it was only while reading this excerpt today that I realized this is not the first time we've had this account. This is not the first time that we've had a road like this. Do any of you remember the other road like this that, that occurs in the pages of the Lord of the Rings? Is, is, do any of you have that, that memory burrowed away somewhere deep? Because I was thinking today of the emergence in the Dimral Vale, of, of, of coming out of Khazad-dum after Gandalf's death. And as we, we pause by the Miramir, of course, but then we take the road down toward Lothlorien. And the account of the road is actually very similar. You'll remember that it is paved for some distance coming out of, out of, uh, out of, of the Dimral Dale there, coming out of the, the, the mouth of Khazad-dum itself, down toward the elves, and then falls into disrepair, and then finally 
is is lost. Finally, it's a track again. There's no accounting of its its you know arrow sure flight or anything like that. But it does feel very similar. It feels as though we've got the same kind of well, the same decline, right? We're, we're seeing the great artifacts of the old world. And as we discussed at the time, a road is a great artifact, right? A road is one of the most powerful symbols of civilization because fortresses and, and communities and, and gated towns and even farms and windmills and all of these things, they are necessary for an insular existence, right? We have a community, we need to protect that community or provide for that community or, or you know, just advance that community, uh, allow that community to grow. So we will invest in public infrastructure for the good of this community. But roads themselves do not serve single isolated communities. Roads themselves are tools of civilization because it is only community in the aggregate sense, civilization in the broadest sense that is served by the existence of roads, right? That's how we connect these things together, which is, of course, true of, of Gondor in the, in, the, uh, in the ancient days there before the men of Gondor too started to wane at least a little bit. Don't tell Boromir that I said that. Um, or Faramir, come to that. Um, so the roads are important and seeing the roads fall into ruin and, and disrepair is certainly indicative of the passing of civilization from these settled lands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Would the road outside of Brie also count? It's specifically noted that they maintain the road. Yes. Well, Brie is, Brie is a little different, right? Because Brie is not quite the same relic of fallen glory, right? Brie never, <laughs> the lands around Brie were never as great as the lands here in the south. They were never as great as Athelion. They were never as great as, as the settled lands of Gondor or, or even the settled lands of Arnor in the north. You'll remember that as we're moving along the east road there out of Brie and we're, we're approaching Weathertop, we're talking about the, the, um, the stone ruins that we can see on hilltops, these great and ancient fortresses still sticking out, still thrusting into the sky all along the eastern road there. Those are relics of a sort too, but those, of course, are defensive relics. You build fortresses to protect, to, in a sense, insulate. Roads don't insulate in that same way. Roads, what is the opposite of insulate? Exulate. Roads exulate, I suppose, your communities and your kingdoms and your cultures and your civilizations. Roads are necessarily, by definition, roads are connective. And that, I think, is, is a, really interesting, uh, a really interesting idea. And I do, hmm. Let me hesitate there. I don't believe that Tolkien is drawing a specific reference between a specific connection between the road here south of Moranon into Ithilien and the road out of the Dimmerald Dale down toward Lothlorien. I don't think that he is saying these two things are like one another, but I do think that this is probably a spontaneous uh, reoccurrence of the same underlying metaphor here. That that does seem to me to be very true. Yeah. Good. Okay. Let's uh, let's keep pushing on. As I say, lots of slides still to go, and we must move into Ithilien before we get to some hobbitry here. So they passed into the northern marches of that land that men once called Ithilien, a fair country of climbing woods and swift-falling streams. The air became fine under star and round moon, and it seemed to the hobbits that the fragrance of the air grew as they went forward, and from the blowing and muttering of Gollum it seemed that he noticed it too, and did not relish it. At the first signs of day they halted again. They had come to the end of a long cutting, deep and sheer-sided in the middle, by which the road clove its way through a stony ridge. Now they climbed up the westward bank and looked abroad. Excuse me. Day was opening in the sky, and they saw the mountains were now much further off, receding eastward in a long curve that was lost in the distance. Before them, as they turned west, gentle slopes ran down in dim hazes far below. 
All about them were small woods of resinous trees, fir and cedar and cypress and other kinds unknown in the shire, with wide glades among them, and everywhere there was a wealth of sweet-smelling herbs and shrubs. The long journey from Rivendell had brought them far south of their own land, but not until now in the more sheltered region had the hobbits felt the change of clime. Here spring was already busy about them, fronds pierced moss and mould, larches were green-fingered, small flowers were opening in the turf, birds were singing, Ithilien, the garden of Gondor now desolate, kept still a dishevelled dryad loveliness. And if you are... Compiling a list of the most beautiful sentences in The Lord of the Rings, the most beautiful single uh, sentences, single fragments of thought, Ithilien, the garden of Gondor, now desolate, kept still a disheveled dryad loveliness, really belongs on that list. I'm saying that's that's a solid top 20, maybe even a top 10 spot for that particular sentence. It is just gorgeous. Tolkien himself was surprised by the loveliness of Athelion. There is a letter which he wrote to his son Christopher while he's drafting this part of the book originally, uh, in which he is, expresses surprise that Athelion is turning out to be quite as fair and lovely as it is. He didn't quite expect it to be like this as he was writing it, but of course it came to him. It, it emerged from the depths of his subcreative act, from the, I suppose, heights of his subcreative act would be a more appropriate metaphor, uh, a metaphor with which Professor Tolkien would be more inclined to agree, I think. Um, it emerged to him as he was writing this draft, so it is no wonder that Athelion is is preserved and beautiful, though you'll note that it isn't the kind of, of ethereal loveliness that we associate with Lothlorien, right? There is nothing here unnatural. Everything here is still of the world. It is just a rich and a wholesome kind of, of world around them. The long journey from Rivendell had brought them far south of their own land, but not until now in this more sheltered region had the hobbits felt the change of clime. Here spring was already busy about them. Fronds pierced moss and mold. Larches were green-fingered. Small flowers were opening in the turf. Birds were singing. Fronds pierced moss and mold. Upon Lothlorien, there was no stain, right? That's the, that's the opposition here. This is a living, breathing, changing land and is all the more beautiful for that, all the more precious for that. Ithilien, the garden of Gondor, now desolate, kept still a disheveled dryad loveliness. Just, just gorgeous. <laughs> As R. Faramir points out, changing the inclination of the text just a little here, uh, R. Faramir points out, a disheveled dryad is surprisingly suggestive. Um... Yes, true, true. I do not think that the I do not think that the dryad here in the metaphor is herself disheveled, but rather that there is a disheveled, you know, there is an unmanicured, unmaintained kind of, of wilderness aspect to Athelion, which of course contrasts with that notion of the Garden of Gondor, right? The Garden of Gondor now desolate, kept still a disheveled dryad loveliness. This is not the tame and manicured orderly land that it once was. But that is not to say that it is unlovely. That is not to say that it is anything... And of course, we're drawing the, the connection back to the Shire there, right? The Garden of the Shire is, is a metaphor that we revisit quite a lot. But yeah, yeah, good, good. Yeah, dryad, as, as Jenna points out, also being used as an adjective in the sentence, right? We're not talking about a specific dryad here. We're, uh, another way of formulating this, a way that I have seen this word formulated, and I don't know if this is... It's just now occurring to me, and I haven't looked into it at all. So I don't know if this is convention, if this is choice, if this is a kind of neologistic flourish from other writers who are uncomfortable with dryad being used in its adjectival form here. But I have seen dryadic, and I don't think I like that as much as I like just just dryad used here to, to summon forth that ethereal 
spirit of nature. I, I kind of, yeah, I'm into that. It, it really works. Beautiful. Um, yes, as Seastar points out, this, this, is lovely, this is a lovely observation here. As Seastar points out, Imladris and Lothlorien are precariously preserved refuges. Ithilien is no longer a refuge and has recently grown into wild beauty. Yes, exactly right. There is still loveliness in the world. There is still hope in the world. Let's get to um, Sam and Gollum. Here we go. Um, yes. Hi, Gollum, said Sam. Where are you going? Hunting? Well, see here, old noser, you don't like our food, and I'm not sorry for change myself. Your new, mo your new motto's always ready to help. Could you find anything fit for a hungry hobbit? Yes, perhaps yes, said Gollum. Smeagol always helps if they asks, if they asks nicely. Right, said Sam. He does ask. And if that isn't nice enough, I begs. Gollum disappeared. He was away some time, and Frodo, after a few mouthfuls of Lemba, settled down to the brown fern and went to sleep. Sam looked at him. The early daylight was only just creeping down into the shadows under the trees, but he saw his master's face very clearly, and his hands, too, lying at rest on the ground beside him. He was reminded suddenly of Frodo as he had lain asleep in the house of Elrond after his deadly wound. Then, as he had kept watch, Sam had noticed that at times a light seemed to be shining faintly within— but now the light was even clearer and stronger. Frodo's face was peaceful. The marks of fear and care had left it. But it looked old, old and beautiful, as if the chiseling of the shaping years was now revealed in many fine lines that had before been hidden, though the identity of the face was not changed. Not that San Gamgee put it that way to himself. He shook his head as if finding words useless and murmured, I love him. He's like that, and sometimes it shines through somehow, but I love him whether or no. Sam recognizing the change within Frodo, right? And, and clearly recognizing the change because the point of comparison that he draws here is not with, I oh, remember Frodo back in the Shire. I remember Frodo when we were marching to Crick Hollow. I remember Frodo that last night at Weathertown. That's not what he's remembering. He's remembering Frodo near death. He's remembering Frodo after suffering the wound from the Morgul blade and the light within him well, this is perhaps a little surprising, and perhaps in some senses not surprising, but it seems as though Sam is discerning some of that light of the Wraith world. He is discerning something ethereal contained within Frodo. There it shone, back in the house of Elrond, as Frodo lay caught between worlds, almost on the brink of death. And now it's stronger. And Frodo is, of course, stronger too. Both sides of Frodo's nature, both, both worlds in which Frodo finds himself are stronger and more present and more urgent for Frodo now. He has been changed in some sense, revealed in some sense. But of course, none of that matters for Sam. Sam is not a hobbit of hope or despair. Sam is not a hobbit of this world or the other. Sam is a faithful hobbit. Sam loves Frodo. He, he loves him with that, that fealty and that near... Hmm. A, <laughs> I'm really hesitating to use this word, you guys, because this is not the kind of language, weirdly, that we oftentimes associate with the Lord of the Rings. He loves Frodo with a fealty and with a kind of piety, not a piety that is attached to Frodo himself, but a kind of piety that is reflected in Sam's understanding of his position in, in, in good and orderly society, right? It's not a belief in anything outside of himself in that sense, but it is a belief a belief in that thing of which he himself is a part, if that makes any kind of sense. I'm not at all sure that I'm uh, explaining that or, or clarifying that. Yes, good, good. 
Yes, as Jackie observes, the voice of the narrator compared to the voice of Sam here is pretty great. I was thinking that too. Again, coming back to this idea that this book is written by Frodo after the fact. So Frodo, Frodo presumably has some conversation with Sam, right? Years later, Frodo and Sam sit down and Frodo's like, so remember when we were in Athelion? What did I look like? Like, like what did you get from me as we were we were in that last part of the journey toward uh, toward Kareth Ungol? And Sam says, well, you don't know Master Frodo. There was like a light and I'm very embarrassed and I'll fix some tea and that'll be that. And, you know, Rosie's going to come in with some cakes and it's all going to be i'm spoiling the end of this book left and right i do apologize for those of you who haven't yet read ahead though i suppose if you haven't yet read ahead then those spoilers are just baffling and incomprehensible anyway in any case i like to imagine that some years after the after the fact frodo and sam have a conversation about this and frodo playfully goes and writes this scene and then gives us not that sam gamgee would have put it that way to himself he shook his head as if finding words useless and murmured i love him he's like that and sometimes it shines through somehow but i love him whether or no recognizing the change within Frodo, not a change that is evident in his face in the sense that Frodo has been transformed, which is crucially important, right? Because the other point of reference here is Gollum. Sam's beginning, I think, to suspect that there is a deeper connection between Frodo and Gollum at this point. Certainly that will be, uh, that will be explored still further, much more powerfully as we move into the Return of the King specifically. Uh, but that notion is now present in Sam's mind. He hasn't been changed yet but he has been revealed. There is still something within Frodo that is always within him, and sometimes it shines through somehow. Pretty great, pretty great. Yes, yes, good. Okay, let's, uh, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't not pull this slide. Sam and Gollum are coming to something of, of an understanding, it would seem. And I do not think for a second that this is disconnected from their movement out of the plains of Dagorlad, out of the Emmemul, out of the Dead Marshes, out of lands held by the enemy, lands that are infused with the spirit of the enemy, right? They have moved out of those lands into Athelion. They are now, and of course, as we're thinking of the road south from Moranon and the connection with the road coming out of the Dimrald Dale, so we should be thinking of Athelion and... Holland on, on the western side of the Misty Mountains, right before we get to, to Moria, when we come down from Carathras, we're in Holland and we can feel the presence of elves. The Numenorians were not elves, but there is still a presence here. It's not unlike elves. There is still an older goodness here. And Sam seems to be much more his old self. Sam is much more, well, forgiving and, and companionable than he was when they were in lands held by the enemy outright. The shadow is not falling on Sam Gamgee as deeply as once it did. No, no, said Sam. Each to his own fashion. Our bread chokes you and raw coney chokes me. If you give me a coney, the coney's mine, see, to cook if I have a mind. And I have. You needn't watch me. Go and catch another and eat it as you fancy. Somewhere private and out of my sight. Then you won't see the fire and I shan't see you and we'll both be the happier. I'll see the fire. Don't smoke if that's any comfort to you. Gollum withdrew grumbling and crawled into the fern. Sam busied himself with his pans. What a hobbit needs with coney, he said to himself, is some herbs and roots, especially taters, not to mention bread. Herbs we can manage, seemingly. Gollum, he called softly. Third time pays for all. I want some herbs. Gollum's head peeped out of the fern, but his looks were neither helpful nor friendly. Few bay leaves, some thyme and sage will do before the water boils, said Sam. No, said Gollum. Smeagol is not pleased, and Smeagol doesn't like smelly leaves. He doesn't eat grasses or roots, no precious. Not till he's starving or very sick, poor Smeagol. Smeagol will get into real true hot water when this water boils if he doesn't do as he's asked, growled Sam. Sam will put his head in it, yes, precious. And I'll make him look for turnips and carrots and taters too, if it was the time of year. I'll bet there's all sorts of good things running wild in this country. I'd give a lot for half a dozen taters. 
Smeagol won't go. Oh, no, precious, not this time, hissed Gollum. He's frightened and he's very tired and the hobbit's not nice, not nice at all. Smeagol won't grub for roots and carrots and taters. What's taters, precious, eh? What's taters? Potatoes, said Sam. The gaffer's delight and rare good ballast for an empty belly. But you won't find any, so you needn't look. But be good, Smeagol, and fetch me the herbs and I'll think better of you. What's more, if you turn over a new leaf and keep it turned, I'll cook you some of the taters one of these days. I will. Fried fish and chips served by S. Gamgee. You couldn't say no to that. Yes, yes, we could. Smoiling nice fish, scorching it. Give me fish now and keep nasty chips. Oh, you're hopeless, said Sam. Go to sleep. Sam here, as I say, kindling this, not a friendship, right? Not barely a relationship, but a certain civility with Gollum in that he's talking to Gollum about things which are themselves civil. This sharing of Sam's perspective, the sharing of Sam's values, this is very different from the kinds of conversations that we'd had before for all that he's threatening to dunk his head into hot water. And and, I mean, I do love this. Sam will put his head in it. Yes, precious. Like, okay, Sam Gamgee on point right there. But then also offering him fish and chips. Fish and chips. I'll make you fish and chips. Fish and chips by S. Gamgee. You couldn't say no to that. Even you, Gollum, you wretched weird monster. Like, even you couldn't say no to that. But you'll note that even as Sam is becoming more comfortable, bound in this this garden of Ethelion, as he's, as he's pulling out here, uh, I bet there's all sorts of good things running wild in this country. How is Gollum feeling? What's he doing? He's frightened and he's very tired and this hobbit's not nice, not nice at all. Sam and Frodo are less frightened and less tired than they have been in quite some time. Gollum more so. And we got that brief account as we moved into Athelion that they could sense the goodness. Frodo and Sam could sense the goodness here, could sense the, the civilization here, could sense the spirit of the men of Numenor in this land. And so could Gollum and he did not like it, not one bit. There's still a fundamental discord here between Frodo and Sam on the one side, the hobbits on the one side, and the ex-hobbits, former hobbits, hobbits as was on the other side. I must keep pushing on. We could we could talk about hobbitry and potatoes for, for quite some time, but we have three more slides to get to, and I am at time, and we definitely can't stop tonight before we have talked about Faramir. Luckily, if they were astonished at what they saw, their captors were even more astonished. Four tall men stood there, Two had spears in their hands with broad, bright heads. Two had great bows, almost of their own height, and great quivers of long, green-feathered arrows. All had swords at their sides and were clad in green and brown of varied hues, as if the better to walk unseen in the glades of Athelion. Green gauntlets covered their hands, and their faces were hooded and masked with green, except for their eyes, which were very keen and bright. At once Frodo thought of Boromir, for these men were like him in stature and bearing and in their manner of speech. "'We've not found what we sought,' said one. "'But what have we found?' Not orcs, said another, releasing the hilt of his sword, which he had seized when he saw the glitter of sting in Frodo's hand. Elves, said a third, doubtfully. Nay, not elves, said the fourth, the tallest, and appeared to be the chief among them. Elves do not walk in Athelion in these days, and elves are wondrous fair to look upon, or so tis said. Meaning we're not, I take you, said Sam. Thank you kindly, and when you've finished discussing us, perhaps you'll say who you are, and why you can't let two tired travellers rest. The tall green man laughed grimly. I am Faramir. Captain of Gondor, he said, but there are no travelers in this land, only the servants of the Dark Tower or of the White. But we are neither, said Frodo, and travelers we are, whatever Captain Faramir may say. Here we are, 
Captain Faramir, Faramir of the Guard. <laughs> now we're talking about we're talking about uh, chips and potatoes. Yeah, Lily is pointing out this is this is this is very fair, right? Potatoes, as we've discussed before, anachronistic in the Shire. Or okay, let's pull that back a little bit. Not technically anachronistic in the Shire. We don't. The Shire is a fictional place. The Shire could have whatever they want. The Shire can absolutely have potatoes. That's completely fine. However. In the context that the Shire is supposed to be the prehistory of Western Europe, specifically the prehistory of England, and in the context that Tolkien shied away from anything which entered England or the English language, um, God, okay, I've just had a new notification from Crowdcast. This is obviously a Crowdcast update. Crowdcast is just telling me that uh, that I have two hours max, and at 90 minutes it's now showing me a window asking me if I want to schedule another session following right on from this one. Hey, that might be a useful get out, uh, a useful escape clause in future sessions, but not this day. Some sessions will run over. Someday the, uh, the precision and brevity of Point North Media will fail, but not this day. Um, okay. So yes, it is true, technically speaking, that, that England didn't have potatoes in the kind of time period where we're the kind of time period we're gesturing toward in the context of the Lord of the Rings, I suppose. The Shire, who knows, yes. And and it may still be that, that I don't know, the elves brought potatoes from Valinor or something. I don't know. But yes, strictly speaking, by, by the standards that Tolkien has established at this point in the text, yes, anachronistic or semi-anachronistic. At the same time, given that the Shire is supposed to be representative of the English rural idyll, of, of the best virtues of England... Potatoes are necessary. Chips specifically are necessary for that idyll to feel like England. You know, never before has a country taken a, a particular <laughs> particular foodstuff of any kind, really, and made it so fundamentally a part of not just their culinary tradition, but of their national identity. You guys, you can't be England without potatoes, which is why I think uh, Tolkien has has made this uh, made this uh, made this change here. Yes, good. Good. Okay. So this is our introduction to Faramir. And right off the bat, I just adore Faramir. I love the wit of Faramir here. Just this, this teasing, elves do not walk in the Thillion in these days, and elves are wondrous fair to look upon, or so tis sad. And Sam gets his point, exactly. Meaning we're not, I take you, said Sam. And Faramir's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at you guys. Look at you little guys right here hiding in a fern. It's pretty cute. It's pretty cute. Not exactly wondrous fair. Hey, I'm Faramir, by the way. So this is our introduction. I'm Faramir, captain of Gondor, but there are no travelers in this land, only the servants of the Dark Tower or the White, the servants of either Barad-dûr or Minas Morgul. This just takes us back to the fact that this book is called The Two Towers, right? Which two towers is he referring to? Is he referring to Barad-dûr, which is much further away, but is traditionally the Dark Tower or the Black Tower? Or is he referring to Minas Morgul, which is actually rather close by and also very, very bad, right? The, 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 the Mor in, in Morgul, is black. It's the same more as in Mordor. The White Tower? Well, that's, um, that's Minas Tirith. That's the, the White Tower of Guard on the other side of Old Osgiliath. So this is our introduction, not just, of course, to Faramir, but to men of Gondor, I suppose. Besides Boromir, these are the first men of Gondor that we've spent any time with at all. Let's get into our discussion. Uh, in a slide which I have playfully entitled, Have you all heard of Boromir? You all heard of Boromir? Boromir ring a bell? Boromir! All four men exclaimed. Boromir, son of the Lord Denethor, said Faramir, and a strange, stern look came into his face. You came with him. This is news indeed, if it be true. Know, little strangers, that Boromir, son of Denethor, was high warden of the White Tower, and our captain general. Sorely do we miss him. Who are you, then? And what have you to do with him? Be swift, for the sun is climbing. Uh, and then Frodo says, excuse me, Frodo says, 
Are the riddling words known to you that Boromir brought to Rivendell? Frodo replied. Seek for the sword that was broken, in Imladris it dwells. The words are known indeed, said Faramir in astonishment. It is some token of your truth that you also know them. Aragorn, whom I named, is the bearer of the sword that was broken, said Frodo, and we are the halflings that the rhymes spoke of. That I see, said Faramir thoughtfully, or I see that it might be so. And what is Isildur's bane? That is hidden, answered Frodo. Doubtless it will be made clear in time. We must learn more of this, said Faramir, and know what brings you so far east under the shadow of yonder. He pointed and said no name. But not now. We have business in hand. You are in peril, and you, you would not have gone far by field or road this day. There will be hard hand strokes not excuse me, there will be hard hand strokes nigh at hand ere the day is full, then death or swift, li- swift flight back to Anduin. I will leave two to guard you, for your good and for mine. Wise man trusts not to chance meeting on the road in this land. If I return, I will speak more with you. Farewell, said Frodo, bowing low. Think what you will. I am a friend of all enemies of the one enemy. We would go with you if we halfling folk could hope to serve you, such doughty men as strong as you seem, and if my errand permitted it. May the light shine on your swords. The halflings are courteous folk, whatever else they may be, said Faramir. Farewell. Yes, as Jenna calls out in the chat, the halflings are courteous folk, whatever else they may be. Truth. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Heroes of Bart saying, well, my brother Boromir, you must know Boromir. Everyone knows Boromir. Boromir's the best. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, uh, didn't mention that he's my bro. Didn't mention that... Uh yeah, we'll get to all of that in due course, of course. Uh, so here, Frodo echoing the words that brought Boromir all the way to uh, to Rivendell in the first place. Seek for the sword that was broken, in Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. And I love, too, Frodo's little trick here, right? I love the, the, the two lines that Frodo gives, kind of a call and response here from Faramir. Are the riddling words known to you that Boromir brought to Rivendell? Frodo replied, seek for the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells. The words are known indeed, said Faramir. It is some token of your truth that you know them. Well, says Frodo, Aragorn, whom I named is the bearer of the sword that was broken, and we are the halflings that the rhyme spoke of. That I see, said Faramir thoughtfully, or I see that it might be so. And what, crucially, is Isildur's bane? Frodo has not mentioned Isildur's Bane. Faramir is mentioning that, I think, in part as confirmation that, no, in fact, I know the poem too. Like, I know these words too. I may have had a dream or two. Turns out, prior to Boromir leaving Gondor for for Inladris, I may have had a dream too. As I said, I'm giving Faramir short shrift here because we really do have to, uh, we really do have to wrap. <laughs> Jenna saying here in the chat, yeah, wow, Faramir's gatekeeping here. You're only a real fan if you know the pro- if you know the poem. Yeah, right. Know your lore, Frodo. Like, you don't just get to come in here and talk about Boromir. You don't just get to talk about the, the Captain General of the White Tower, you know, Boromir, son of Denethor, High Warden of the White Tower. You don't get to just come in here and do that. No, it's, it's very cute. It's very cute. Yes. Uh, Shane says, if anyone knows anything, it's that oracles and prophecies are super clear. Yeah. And Lily says, classic spy password stuff here. I like that quite a lot. Yeah. The passphrase. Yes. Yes. Good. Good. All right. Um, let me see here. Good. Good. Okay. So. Danger is afoot. Um, Faramir and his men, his his doughty men of Gondor, are are here for a purpose. They are here on some errand. Frodo has acknowledged that he too is on some errand, doesn't want to share too much just yet. I take, by the way, Faramir to be sincere when he asks, and what is Isildur's bane? I don't believe that he knows. Boromir didn't know, remember, when he showed up at the Council of Elrond. It was uh, news to him. The events of 
the last, uh, the war of the last alliance, the the the, the great last battle on the plains of Dagorlad, north of of Moranon, the 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 felling of Sauron by Isildur, the falling of Elendil, the taking of the ring from Sauron's hand. All of these events, we have to remember, we are now in the year three thousand and nineteen of the Third Age. These events happened three thousand years ago. That's a long time, even for you know places where lore doesn't wane. It's not surprising that Isildur's Bane is not well known in Gondor. Boromir didn't know about it. I take Faramir to have some sense of what happened at the Battle of the Last Alliance at the end of the Second Age, but not necessarily to know, well, explicitly not to know everything that happened. We'll talk more about Faramir when we get back to him at the end of, uh, in the middle, in fact, of next week's reading. First, though, our last slide of the evening, Man Against Man. It was Sam's first view of a battle of Man Against Man, and he did not like it much. He was glad that he could not see the dead face. He wondered what the man's name was and where he came from, and if he was really evil of heart or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from his home, and if he would not really rather have just stayed there in peace, all in a flash of thought that were, dri- that were quickly driven from his mind. For just as Mablung stepped toward the fallen body, there was a new noise, great crying and shouting. Amidst it, Sam heard a shrill bellowing or trumpeting, and then a great thudding or bumping like huge rams dinning on the ground. Where? Where? cried Damar to his companion. May the valor turn him aside! Mumak! Mumak! To his astonishment and terror and lasting delight, Sam saw a vast shape crash out of the trees and come careering down the slope. Big as a house, much bigger than a house, it looked to him. A grey-clad, moving hill. Fear and wonder maybe enlarged him in the hobbit's eyes, but the Mumak of Harad was indeed a beast of vast bulk, and the like of him does not walk now in Middle-earth. His kin that live still in latter days are but memories of his girth and majesty. On he came, straight toward the watchers, and then swerved aside in the nick of time, passing only a few yards away, rocking the ground beneath their feet, his great legs like trees, enormous sail-like ears spread out, long snout upraised like a huge serpent about to strike, his small red eyes raging. His upturned horn-like tusks were bound with bands of gold and dripped with blood. His trappings of scarlet and gold flapped about him in wild tatters. The ruins of what seemed a very, a very war tower lay upon his heaving back, smashed in his furious passage through the woods, and high upon his neck still desperately clung a tiny figure, the body of a mighty warrior, a giant among the swertings. On the great beast thundered, blundering in blind wrath through pool and thicket. Arrows skipped and snapped harmlessly off the triple hide of his flanks. Men of both sides fled before him, but many he overtook and crushed to the ground. Soon he was lost to view, still trumpeting and stamping far away. What became of him Sam never heard whether he escaped to roam the wild for a time until he perished far from his home or was trapped in some deep pit, or whether he raged on until he plunged into the great river and was swallowed up. Oliphant, sir! Um, Sam gets his wish, I suppose, in a manner of speaking. Though here again, I think we see the positive influence of Ithilien. Here we see in the heart of Sam Gamgee the restoration that has come over him at their return to good lands, lands of nobility, lands of civility, right? We've seen him fight with Gollum, be suspicious of Gollum, have this awful relationship, been pretty, you know, with the exception of his response to the the things, that the, the, those items which he carried with him out of Lothlorien, right? He's still very fond of elves, still very fond of elvish craft throughout his, his trek through the mountains and across the marshes and across the plains and then down south of Moran and now. With the exception of those things, 
Sam has been defeated. He's been caustic and cynical and grumbly and just not himself. He has not been Sam Gamgee, right? Now, we've seen the warming of his heart toward Gollum, the restoration of food, of course, probably a, a significant thing there. But even the restoration of food is proof that we are in a different land now, that we have entered the Garden of Athelion rather than the, the, the ravaged, desolate, shattered plain of Nagarlad here. But here we see two more examples of old Sam Gamgee. We get to see the restoration of Sam here at the end of this chapter. It was Sam's first view of a battle of men against men, and he did not like it much. He was glad that he could not see the dead face. And then immediately the pivot to pity. He wondered what the man's name was and where he came from, and if he was really evil of heart or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from his home, and if he would not really rather have just stayed in place. The first thought that he has as he sees someone who would undoubtedly have slain him outright, okay? He sees the dead body there, and his first thought is one of pity. I am not like you. This, this is the pity of Frodo, right? I am not like you. I have not experienced what you have experienced. And yet, my first thought is about your humanity. Is humanity in the most broad sense, right? Humanity in the real world sense of the word. You're, 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 you're sentience and sapience, right? What, what is it about your soul? Who were you, guy? And then the coming of the Oliphant, the coming of the elephant, the coming of the Mumak in, in Gondorian here. To his astonishment and terror and lasting delight, Sam saw a vast shape crash out of the trees and come careering down the slope. And then we get this expansive description of the elephant coming at him, coming, coming, crashing through the forest here. This, this great and terrifying beast, so vast now that, that uh, uh, his kin that live still in latter days are but memories of his girth and majesty. And then we get the opposition right here at the end. The ruins of what seemed a very war tower lay upon his heaving back, smashed in his furious passage through the woods, and high upon his neck still desperately clung a tiny figure, a tiny figure clinging to his neck. How tiny was he? Well, actually, it was the body of a mighty warrior, a giant among the swertings. So this is a vast man. This is a huge guy clinging to the, the, the neck of the elephant and dwarfed by the immensity of the elephant. And how does Sam respond to this? Astonishment and terror and lasting delight. This is Sam. This is him back again now. He has been restored by this time in Ithilien, restored by rabbit stew, restored by what a, civility, perhaps, restored by new hope, this is Sam at his his best. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting corrected here from Jenna. Uh, it's Oliphant, not Elephant. Uh, yes, um, Oliphant is a Middle English uh, rusticism. It is a it is a deliberately um, a deliberately mispronounced and misspelled version of Elephant. Oliphant was always a. Uh, uh, a ruralism, I suppose, for uh, for Tolkien. It was deliberately and, and consciously supposed to evoke Sam's simplicity and ignorance and uneducated state, I suppose, all of which sound horrible, and I, I hate saying such terrible things about wonderful Sam Gamgee, but yes, there we are. Yes, good, good. Okay, Jenna says, I don't, in all caps, Jenna says, I don't care, Alistair, Oliphant is funner and correct. Fair enough. You know what? Oliphant, from this point on, in all my dealings with, with Oliphants, I shall say Oliphant. Yes. All right. So this is our, our spark of war here. We'll circle back around to this in next week's uh, reading. That is going to do it. I absolutely must wrap up here. Our next session, book four, chapter five, maybe my favorite chapter in... Okay. I've said this before, so I'm going to limit myself here. Cancel of Elrond, you know, whatever, whatever. 
this is probably my favorite chapter in The Two Towers. I absolutely love this chapter. I absolutely love what it represents. I absolutely adore its depth and its richness and the amount of Faramir that we get. And we get the good Faramir next week. I mean, Faramir is good in this chapter. Faramir is good always. But we get the heart of Faramir in next week's reading, and I cannot wait to discuss it. Book four, chapter five, The Window on the West. That will be at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, next Thursday, January the 25th, 2018. I hope you will be able to join me for that. Let's dive into some questions very quickly. Let me cancel this slide and dive into some questions here. Maybe next week, says Maxwell Jones here in the chat, anticipating how long I would run with this week's session. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe next week. But what is the essential difference between Aragorn and Faramir? They seem extremely similar in character, with no distinguishable differences other than lineage and respective duties to them. Maxwell, you have absolutely answered your own question there, I think. What is it that separates Aragorn and Faramir? Faramir is the son of the steward, and Aragorn is the king. That seems to me to be the difference. And again... We have to be willing to kind of enter into the the huh, to enter into the fictional realm to a certain degree. And when I say fictional realm in this sense, I'm also talking about the quasi-historical realm, right? Tolkien as a medievalist and, and certainly the, the Lord of the Rings as a book, as a story which is told in the medieval tradition, acknowledges the divine right of kings, acknowledges the fact that kings are actually special. Kings are not like you and me. You don't get to just become king. You are a king from birth. That's how it works. That is the difference between Faramir and, and Aragorn, which means, of course, that Faramir has a very different role. If we contrast this with, with, you know, it's the same relationship on a much smaller scale, right? Aragorn is to Frodo as Faramir is to Sam. That is to say that Faramir's virtue, Faramir's greatness is found in service, is found in fealty, is found in love, the, the true and noble love for his king. That is where Faramir excels. That is, that is why Faramir is who he is. And we'll distinguish there between Faramir and Boromir, because of course, Boromir, for all of his greatness, for all of his power and his skill and his, you know, manly, manly magnitude, Boromir was not a good servant. He did not honor his place in that, that feudal system. He did not honor his place in the social system established in Middle-earth. Now, again, this may feel slightly unpleasant, slightly uncomfortable for a modern audience, particularly for a more egalitarian and socially mobile American audience. But this, I think, this is one of those points where we have to kind of meet the story on its own terms. That is, the, that is what distinguishes Faramir from Aragorn. They are both excellent men, but one is the king and one is the servant of the king. And being the servant of the king does not make you less than the king. It just makes you different than the king in the same way that Sam is not in, in terms of virtue, in terms of morality, in terms of worth, Sam is not less than Frodo. He is just different from Frodo. That's very much the the, the connection there. Yeah. Um, there we go. Oh, um, are we asking about a lot of chat? I turn away from the chat for just a second, and now there's now there's a lot of chat. Um, are we talking about the rune that I have here? Yes, I have. I have. Uh, I have the rune behind me. This is the. Uh, this is the a version of the rune that, that Tolkien drew for himself, basically, as like a like a, a sigil for his name. Yeah, yeah very good. Okay, um, let me see here. Lily asks, "Do these, do those possessed of foresight realize their power, or are they making comments that turn out to be prophetic?" Um, gosh, that's huge, right? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes. No. And it's unclear whether there is, this is why I mentioned earlier that there was a book to be written about prophecy in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, because it isn't clear that all prophecies are derived from the same power or derived from the same impulse, right? 
Aragorn makes prophetic statements. He makes prophetic statements because he is king and seems to be possessed of a kind of sight. He seems to be possessed of a kind of, of deeper wisdom and a connection to the movement of things. Frodo makes prophetic statements. Apparently, hmm. I was going to say, Frodo makes prophetic statements without, you know, a conscious awareness, but Aragorn kind of also makes some of his prophetic statements without a conscious awareness, too. In fact, he'll call it out. He'll, he'll call out after the fact, hey, didn't I say this was going to happen? Didn't I, didn't I say this thing was going to happen? So there is a difference there, but Frodo certainly seems to be acting under the influence of the ring. He seems to be, you know, it is because of the influence of the ring that Frodo is capable of, of making these prophetic statements. Though, again, we have to talk about these prophetic dreams. You know, Bilbo had prophetic dreams around the time that he came into possession of the ring. Um... Frodo has prophetic dreams now, too, and sometimes those are very specific and sometimes not at all specific. So I'm, I'm not sure that we can generally state that there is an awareness of prophecy in the act of prophecy or um, even a consistent lack of awareness of prophecy, right? Sometimes we know, sometimes it feels as though we're in that moment, and that ties back to, you know, even not just statements of prophecy, or, or statements of, 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 of foretelling, I suppose, if we want to take like a broader sense here. Um, not just those statements, but also statements of insight and of wisdom, right? This goes back to Elrond at the Council of Elrond. If I understand aright all that I have heard, and I discussed at the time when we were talking about the Council of Elrond, that seems to be like a reference not just to the conversation in the room. If I understand aright everything that you guys have said, then I have some real insight. I have some real wisdom. It doesn't seem to be that. It seems to be... Elrond's speaking more kind of metaphorically. If I understand to write all that I have heard of the passage of the world, of the Song of the Ainulindale, not literally the Song of the Ainulindale, but like what has filtered down to the elves, if I understand to write all that I have heard, not just in this room at this moment, but throughout my entire life, if I am wise, would be another way of phrasing that, then this is what we must do. There does seem to be a sense in which there is a recognition, which is sometimes present when people make prophetic statements and sometimes absent when people make prophetic statements, there seems to be a recognition that there is a movement to history, that, that we are talking about something that has been in some sense foretold by the song if you're an elf, right? If you have that that sense of the foundations of Arda through the the elven mythological framework of, of the Silmarillion going all the way back to the Anilindale, that's how you understand it. Other races may understand it differently, but there is a sense that this has been foretold, that there is a, a kind of divine or natural purpose at play here and prophecy seems to kind of tie into that but yeah no there, there's a book waiting to be written um i will probably not be the one to, to write that book but yes good um let me see here shane asks do we get the split personality view from the movies predominantly or from sam the split personality of of Gollum here well okay how can we how can we discuss this best um in the book as we've seen there is discord within Gollum. There is conflict within Gollum. There is Gollum and Smeagol, or Slinker and Stinker, or Green and Pale. Like whatever the the whatever terms we use to describe this division, they are present in the book. There there is conflict within Gollum in the book. What the movie did was heighten that division and kind of codify it a little bit. So we get these reverse angle conversations with Gollum on the one side, who is outright evil, and Smeagol on the other, who is not outright evil. And as we discussed in tonight's reading, Slinker and Stinker, they're not good. Neither one of them is good. Neither one of them is, like, oppressed, according to, to Sam's perspective here. One is outright malevolent. One is, one is, one is vicious and aggressive, and the other is more selfish and, and more manipulative for that, arguably. So 
that I think is is the heart of the adaptive difference made by the movie. It, it polarizes Gollum and, and does so, I think, in a really beautiful way, right? It gives us a version of the Gollum that is in the book. It is not a definitive version of the Gollum that is in the book. It is not a comprehensive version of, of the Gollum that is in the book. And it is certainly lacking in some of the nuance that we get from Tolkien's prose. But as a piece of visual spectacle and a piece of narrative spectacle, honestly, I think the Gollum in the movie works pretty well. I'm innately, I think, more interested in the more complicated, nuanced, conflicted golem that we get in the book, because I'm fascinated by how that ties into these notions of good and evil and destiny and fate and preordination and, and choice always, always above all other things, choice and the influence of the ring and all of these many, many questions. I'm fascinated by that in the context of the book. We get less of that in the movie. He's just a simpler creature in the movie. But of course, that's true of well, gee, everyone, right? Everyone is simpler in the movie than they are in, in the book. Even Aragorn, for all that Aragorn is given this extra layer of complexity with his own indecision and his own kind of sense of insecurity and his lack of true identity. Am I really fit to be the king? Is this my role? Is this my fate? Is this the path that I should walk? Yeah, yeah, no, it is though, because you're Aragorn. It's fine. Um, yeah, lots of opportunities to talk uh, to talk about this. Um, yes, Lily also asking, what do we know about the men in the far south and east? Almost nothing. Nikki uh, observes here. Whoa, the chat just jumped there in a weird way that I hadn't seen before. That was very strange. Uh, Nikki comments on Lily's questions. The men of the south are the southerns of the Haradrim. Men of the east are easterlings who are from Rhun um, and Khand, of course, out there too, uh, as Varyag of Khand here in the chat will confirm. Um, yes, uh, that's pretty much all that we know. We don't know a great deal of the south and the east. We don't really delve into it. We get some of that uh, proper noun illusion of depth that we've discussed before, but no really developed stories or really developed history of either the South or the East. We do know that Sauron has an alliance with the men of Run to the East, R-H-U-N, which is why I'm putting some, putting some spin on that as I say it. Uh, we do know that Sauron has an alliance with the men of Run, but we also know that that open border on the eastern edge of Mordor, right? You look at the map of Middle-earth and you go, well... Okay, Morana looks like a bad job. Kirithungal looks like a bad job. Why don't you just go around the mountains to the north and come in that vast open plain to the east? Apparently that vast open plain has been stopped up with fortresses and walls and barricades and all kinds of things because that is how Sauron deals with his allies to the east. So it, it, there's not a loophole there, right? Um, okay. Gosh, I have just a couple minutes left. How many questions do we have? Uh, any story in Star Wars The Last Jedi Dates confirmed? Asked Maxwell very soon. Very soon. Very soon. Um, this week. Yeah. It's going to be good. I'm really looking forward to it. I like that movie a lot. Uh, do you think Sam is prejudiced, not only toward Gollum or just cautious and protective of Frodo, asks Durin's Bane, son of Bard. Um, well, I think I talked about this a little bit tonight. I think that that there is a legitimate argument that you can make for Sam being influenced by his surroundings. for Sam, And not just in a well, things are hard, so I'm going to be a little more grim and a little more depressed and a little more, you know, uh, angry and aggressive and distrustful than I would otherwise be. I haven't had, you know, a, a hot meal for three weeks, so I'm in a bad mood, so therefore I'm going to be suspicious of everyone. I think that the restoration that we see as Sam and Frodo and Gollum enter Ithilien, and I think that this is emphasized in the text because Gollum is so explicitly uncomfortable here, right? This is more than just familiarity there is something in the air that is that is explicitly textual i like the way that, f that that sam is restored by that and kind of brought back to himself he is hardened by by the shadow i think by the influence of the enemy that has fallen forth across the plains of dagalad across the dead marshes across the the, the hills all, all the way back to to uh, across the mmo all the way back to the anduin and parth gallon i think um 
that seems to rob Sam of some of his humanity, some of his hobbitishness uh, as they're passing through that land. And now that is restored here to, to some degree. That's my reading. Um, and obviously, yes, also parenthetically, yes, super protective of Frodo. That's, that's kind of his job. That's what's sustained him is that faith. We absolutely have to, have, to, uh, have to wrap up. You guys, it has been an absolute pleasure. As I said, next week, book four, chapter five, The Window on the West, a really fantastic chapter that we're going to have a lot of fun discussing. 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central next Thursday. That's January the 25th, 2018. If you would like to talk more about the works of Professor Tolkien or about your favorite stories, head on over to our brand new shiny forum at pointnorthmedia.com slash forum. There are discussions raging over there. Huge thanks to Baru for the question which uh, started tonight's session talking about Mount Doom and why it is called Mount Doom. If you have questions and you would like to ask, the forum is an excellent place to do that. pointnorthmedia.com slash forum. I will talk to you all again very soon. I will talk to you all again next week. In fact, until then, fly, you fools! Good night.